where I'm almost like, yes, die, die, I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're discussing Good Omens, the story of the battle between good and evil, which, spoiler, ultimately Azira fails. It's a damn shame. And our guests, because we have more than one, are lecturer Jen Beckett. Hey. And writer Amy Gray. Hello. Welcome both to the podcast. It's our first time having more than one guest. But it just seems so appropriate. We've got two authors. We might as well have two guests. Um, and I'm so excited about both of you being here. Jen, we, you, you are a massive fan of this book. I do. I love it so much. This is my third copy. What, why did you have three copies? Well, I, I made the fatal error of lending one to somebody and not getting it back. But I'm the never. rest of them fell apart. I'm one of the people who dropped it in the bath. That's, wow. That was me. So how many times would you estimate you've read Good Omens? More than is probably good for me, which means it's really good for me. Yeah. And was it your first Pratchett? It was actually. It was my first Pratchett. Have you read the others? I have because my father is a massive Terry Pratchett fan. We actually bought him um, a replica that he could make himself of the university because we're all uni- we're a university family. Oh wow. Well, hi, Jen's dad, if you're listening to this. Uh, And Amy, you're also a big Good Omens fan. I'm a huge Big Omens fan. This is my Christmas Day book. So every Christmas Day, I actually just tell the world to bugger off and I sit there and I read it. And I tell you what, it is far preferable to 98% of Christmas Days most other people experience. (laughs) That's a really good tradition. (laughs) I I only ever had one Christmas tradition that was watching Blackadder's Christmas Carol. (laughs) And then I lent my copy of the DVD to someone and guess what? Never got it back. Yay! Uh, um, But this is not your first copy of the book that you brought with you either. No, I, I feel like this podcast is probably going to be a cautionary tale for the world about not loaning out books. Uh, this is my second copy. I bought this copy as a gateway drug for someone else to get into it. But I, um, my previous copy has disappeared somewhere I've, in a fit of insanity. I've obviously loaned it to someone. And one day, you know, sometimes when you wake up in the morning, you're like, I've got to read this book. I'm not going to do anything except read this book. It's a compulsion. I bought an ebook version of it as well. Oh, yeah. Just for emergencies, you and, know. And well, I, I should also say that we share the Christmas Day tradition. <gasps> really? And we do, yes. Exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Avoiding various people, mm-hmm. not members of my family, because I would never do that. Um, Hi, Jen's dad. <laughs> Next year, can and you I, both and meet I, up and this do is, that together? This is, exactly, <laughs> this is exactly the kind of thing my dad does as well. So I think that's fine. But now I have nephews. So I'm going to have to incorporate reading good omens to a five year old. 
Um, oh, bless. So basically, I'll just read the page that references dinosaurs <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yep. And he'll be fine. Cool with that. Yeah. And skip the section that's just very heavy on marijuana references. I'm not sure that he would A, get that, or B, if that's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, no. That I would read that to him. Well, you know what? If I actually had to find a part that I skipped, it would be when Aziraphale is on the scooter. Oh, yeah. 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 In the body of Madame Tracy. And, and, but also that other part where he's ricocheting around. Oh, yeah. There's some awkwardness there. Can I just really quickly True. say that I really enjoyed the scooter bit because Madame Tracy is doing both her jobs <laughs> at the same time? <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, listeners, welcome to a new year. Um, in Discworld terms, we have just begun the year of the incontrovertible skunk. Uh, every year gets a Discworld name. That's this year's name. That's official. We didn't make that up. That comes from the official source. Uh, so welcome. We hope that uh, that you're enjoying the new year and thanks for sticking with us. It's been a while. We've got some exciting announcements we'll get to at the end of the podcast um, about Pratt Chat and the future of the podcast. So that's it's exciting. Uh, but, but now it's time. I think we just discussed the book. Let's get into it. Uh, and we start as is traditional with the reading of the blurb, but we have four different editions of the book here. So we are spoilt for blurb choice. I'm going to go with, I'm going to do mine. This is, this is an old school one. According to the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, the world's only totally reliable guide to the future, the world will end on a Saturday. Next Saturday, in fact. Just after tea. Mine ends with all that's required now is the Antichrist. There's just one glitch. Someone seems to have misplaced him. Oh, that's good. That's nice. Mine ends with, you could spend the time left pre-Armageddon drowning your sorrows, giving away all your possessions in preparation for the rapture, or laughing it off as hopefully just another hoax, or you could just try to do something about it, which lends it a very 90s action film Hmm. air, (laughs) I find. It does, yeah. I can hear the guitars in the background. I can Nicholas see Cage. Angelina Jolie yes. typing into a computer. <laughs> Nicholas this is, this Cage is the Nicholas Cage Adam. <laughs> yes. Oh my god! <laughs> Nicholas Cage is all of them. Yes, it could it could be Nicholas Cage is God. <laughs> uh, it's like, surely the only role he hasn't played at this part. And he he has to be going full Cage. Full Cage, yeah. Full There's cage. a special guest cameo of, of Steve Buscemi as the dog. Yeah, actually, I think Nicolas Cage would be amazing as Hasta when he gets caught in the telephone lines. Oh, but also now I'm imagining like um, Steve Buscemi as a demon, just like going, hello, fellow humans. <laughs> uh, no one believing it for a second. Um, be great. Be great. Um, but look, let's let's start at the start. And this book does start at the start. Well, not quite the start. It doesn't involve, you know, sort of biblical creation, but it starts not long after because we start in the Garden of Eden. I don't know. I, how do people feel about this sequence? Like, I kind of love it because it's so, it just sets the tone for the book. It's so irreverent, but yet yeah, embracing of the kind of source material as well. It's very cute because it does let you know about these characters who are trying to do what this side expects of them, but they're a bit bad at it because they just can't help but want to quibble with the rules that they've been given, whether it's giving the the flaming sword to Adam and Eve or, you know, crawling, wondering if he's doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just really cute. It's like when you work in hospitality and the 
place has rules for customers that don't make sense and they're clearly made by people who never worked on the front line of customer service. And so when a customer questions you about it, you have to toe the line without really believing in it. And I feel like that's kind of at the heart of it. That's Mm. such a good way of putting it. I'm trying to think of an example, but there's just too many. (laughs) Yeah. Well, also, they're not getting a lot of good support from management in general. Mm. The customers have been talking to the manager and now you sort of have to sheepishly look the other way as you think, oh, the manager's not doing the right thing here. Like, <laughs> it's not a good position to be in for anybody. There was one where we were cash only and customers would always ask why. And it was clearly because we hadn't got it set up and it was not in our control. But they'd ask you why and then get sh- and some of them would insist on knowing why. So you come up with different answers and mostly try to suppress the urge to say it's because I'm a giant fan of Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> Surely that is the only acceptable answer. <laughs> also leads to the question, Johnny Cash, heaven or hell? Ooh. Ooh. Well, according to the, the angels, yes. well, according to, to Crowley, would he not be hell? Well, well, they did say all musicians are in ba, hell except ba, for List and... one of, a couple of the classical composers yeah. who are really boring. Maybe he was like yeah. a prophet because he had the whole ring of fire thing. So like maybe he's kind of like Agnes and could see that. Mm. Or maybe, just maybe, he's an angel slash demon. I mean, there's not much difference in the end, isn't there? No. Well, with this, because this book does demons are fallen angels, embracing that mythology, which I only learned like a few years ago. Is this? It's not. That's not a biblical thing. It's not in the Bible. <laughs> like that's entirely from other sources. You didn't go to a Catholic school, did you? No. Yeah. Yeah, I did. That's definitely yeah. a thing you're taught in Catholic schools. I'm, yeah. I'm from the other place. This is what will happen to you What's if you go other? against the ineffable plan. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. Okay. Well, so I, I do like the fact that the ineffable plan is both heaven and hell. Yeah, no one so really knows what's going on. I feel like definitely a couple of people are working together. And I, I do. I like middle. The, the angels and the demons are kind of middle management. Is thing. ineffable allowed to be a word? Because it's like... A word describing something that's beyond words. Well, you need a word for that, don't you? <laughs> if we're like, all right, but can you have a like? It just doesn't seem right. It's like postmodern. Mm. Mm. Oh. As a word, oh, I hate it's that. Like word. a band aid solution. Look, it's the one word in the English language which is almost like when you say, "What's that word for a really complicated thing?" and you get a seventeen-syllable German word. Mm. I feel like ineffable is that. And also for a word that is literally ineffable, it's got a lot of Fs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also feel like the fact that it's got F in it just seems appropriate because when dealing with things that are ineffable, you probably say F a lot, don't you? <laughs> yeah, no one enjoys ineffability. No. Mm. no. But the, the weird thing is, though, that a double F like that in Old English would be an S sound. So perhaps it's inessible. Mm. Or depends. Maybe it depends on if you're a demon and an angel. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. then you know Crawley very much likes that sound. Mm. And it, it's what, a bit of that. It's also a different sound in Welsh. Double F. Is that a th? Or no? Is that a? I've forgotten. Let's we'll check on the Welsh language. Yeah. <laughs> we'll figure that. Out. There'll be a Welsh, there'll be a Welsh edition thing, and then we leap forward to not quite the modern day. It's the 1980s. I mean, because I've always just assumed that the section, like the end of the book, happens. Uh, you know, at the time when the book was published. So it's like around 1990. Uh, And then the rest of the book, therefore, is 10 years earlier. So it's in the 80s. But it could also be the other way around. And maybe that because it's he's 11 years old, which would mean that if he's born in the the year that the book is published, then he's 11 in like the year 2000 or 2001. So I don't know. Which what do you have any opinions on this? Well, 11 years before he's born, um, Queen exists. So that sort of puts something on the 
on the timeline. Oh, true. And and not just exist, but have a greatest hits album. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Does it? Because Queen has a greatest hits album now. I, I feel like Queen has had a greatest hits album since their first album. Yeah. When did they start? I haven't seen seventies. Seventies. Yeah, definitely seventies. Um, and like, and I mean, look, News of the World has approximately fifty percent of the tracks on News of the World are on Greatest Hits Volume One. It's yeah. like an extraordinary album. Uh, we could probably do the math based on how long he's had the Bentley, but I do not want to go into the history of Bentleys. It's a well, yeah. Well, that's in the nineteen fifties, I think. The Bentley. And he's had it for like sixty years by the end of the book. Hmm. Yeah, something like that. I think, though, that for me, it never really matters because if you've ever spent time in some of these little British towns or villages, mm. they're timeless. And they're even more timeless under Adam's power. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It does feel so, like a very 50s idea of what childhood should yes. be, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. I thought it sort of had the vibe of if Just William was the Antichrist, this is what it would be like. <laughs> <laughs> and we do know Terry Pratchett loves Just William. Mm. Yeah. Uh so that's, I think that's probably a definite influence. But you're right. And I, I, I kind of always figured that, you know, he got this idea of what childhood should be like from his father, who is clearly that kind of old fashioned, like mm-hmm. grew up in the fifties, like is like, he's, he's always described as wearing a sweater and smoking a pipe. Like he's like every caricature of a dad <laughs> um, in any, you know, comic book written up until about the nineties. I feel like the other thing too, is that there's altogether too much kind of, um, you know, boys' own or girls' own language that these these young kids have. Mm. Like, there's a lot of like smashing, smashing jolly good work there, you, sir. You know what? But kids' comics for in Britain were still like that. I, I used to read them. They were the only comics I read when I was growing up in the you know 80s and 90s, and they were still like that. Yeah. But they, I mean, we get this slice of life from what it's like for Crowley and Aziraphale living in the modern day, but it's mostly Crowley, and I think that's sort of. There's a lot of that throughout the book um, that we get more of what Crowley's up to and what Crowley's doing than Aziraphale, which sort of pays into that idea that demons are more interesting than angels that you see in a lot of media. Do, do we agree? I mean, because I, I have to, I deeply identify with Aziraphale on many levels <laughs> because I'm just awful in many of the same ways. But uh, how do we feel about that balance? Do we feel we get enough of both of them? What do you think? I think, well, I think it's interesting because, like, and this goes back to when we were talking about whether that scooter ride section and the ricocheting around trying to find a body works or not. And I think maybe they've tried to give them equal airtime, but the social observation that you get with um, Crowley is actually a lot sharper, a lot more enduring and incisive than you would get with a Xerophel where we have, you know, a terrible section where he turns up in Australia Mm. Um, Mm. and, Mm. you know, other things that just don't work as well. So, you know, yes, Crowley is more interesting because he's actually commenting on modern life because he's externally focused, whereas Xerophel seems to be very internally focused. Plus Xerophel would be a less honest character in some ways, I think, to see through the eyes of because Crowley, like evil is supposed to be uninhibited like they don't try and suppress their urge to be bad whereas Aziraphale clearly has those urges and he's suppressing them all the time so therefore you'd have to go through several personal filters to see what he actually thinks whereas mm. with Crowley I don't think that's as much the case. Mm. I think Crowley's probably closer to being human in many ways and that's why he, he wants to stop Armageddon because he quite enjoys being 
human mm. a lot. But the other thing too is, I mean, personally, I think Aziraphale is a bit of a wet blanket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, as much as I would love to have his bookstore, yes. because I am an academic, so yes, mm. that I would like that. But I'm much more, I'm much more Crowley oriented. And can I just say, I'm pretty sure that Crowley is the person who who actually got behind the invention of a lot of things that that say disruptor. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, Crowley invented Uber people. It's um I mean it reminds me a lot the the sort of angel demon metaphysics of the book. Not that that's really a it's it's a comedy book and don't have to take that too seriously. But it is important to the context of what happens. And there's sort of that intimation that angels and demons don't or angels at least don't have free will in the same way that humans do. It's sort of mentioned obliquely a couple of times. And then and yet, Aziraphale and Crowley act seemingly with complete free will throughout the book. Like they never are compelled to act against their nature and their nature doesn't quite match up with what their superiors expect. Um, which reminds me a lot of, um, there's, a, there's a role-playing game about angels and demons called Anomine, um, which is an, a, it's an English translation of a French game, which was originally two games, Anomine Satanus and um, I've forgotten the name of the other one. Uh, but you can play as angels or demons and it's one of the few games where it's really interesting to play angels because they explicitly don't have proper free will like humans do. And anything they do on earth disturbs the plan because they're not supposed to be there interfering, whereas humans are. So, um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of interesting similarities between the ideas in the books. And yet Aziraphale and Crowley like just do whatever they want, essentially. I, I kind of feel like Aziraphale lost his personality when he gave away his flaming sword because when he gets it back in the end and he's like, oh, I haven't hefted one of these in a while, he suddenly becomes interesting. Oh. I think it's really For interesting. A, like when I, when I think about Aziraphale and where that key point of difference is with Crowley, Aziraphale cares about people. He has empathy for people, but he's not interested in people, mm. whereas Crowley is just like, let me see what shit you're about to do. <laughs> He's just fascinated. Whereas, you know, Aziraphale, most of his interactions are like, I work near this medieval printing press and I'm just going to hang around and occasionally correct things, not because I'm <laughs> interested in you, it's just a topic that I'm interested in. I feel like, though, yeah, I agree, totally agree with you. And I think that one of the things that Crowley's doing is attempting to learn from humans so he can be better at his job. Mm, yes, yeah, totally. so much better at it than he is, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> you don't get the sense that Aziraphale's hanging around going, wow, these humans are really good at being nice to each other. <laughs> like, that never comes up. Um, but it's not very long after we sort of get into the modern that, you know, shit kicks off. Like, the Antichrist is here. Like, he's come from hell and has to be swapped with a baby. I feel like hell is a much more efficient place so like heaven's like, oh, you know what? We've kind of got to birth the savior of the world, do this incredibly complicated thing, and hell's just like the hell's just looked at that and gone, well, that that's a waste of time. Yeah, so, you know, they're just fully formed. Yeah, we just yeah. made this just, here. We just made it. We'll do, we'll do the opposite. Hell's gone. Heaven's gone. Complicated, lengthy period, nine months, whole stupid backstory thing. Ours will just appear. Although having said that, would it not have been more efficient if one of the chattering nuns had actually given birth to it or just appeared in the hospital? No, yeah. because they because and they reference this in the book, this hell feels actually very awkward about mm. Satanists. 
Oh, yeah. oh yes, of course. Yeah. They don't actually just like because mm-hmm, like, yeah, they're not actually part of the gang. They either take it too seriously mm-hmm. or they're just kind of regular folks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they don't want either of those. I, I, I feel like the Satanists are what my mother used to call Sunday Catholics, the Sunday <laughs> Sunday Christians. You know, people who would go to mass or to church if you're not a Catholic, um, to mass every week and you know do their forgive all of my sins and then go about being a complete ass for the rest of the week and somehow that was all right. Mm. And I feel like the Satanists often do the opposite thing. They're like we are evil and terrible and the devil, and then go. About about doing sort of small random acts of kindness, like feeding people tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. It's very Eddie is our cake or death. And look, it's very slapstick, like the way that they go about describing the, the replacement of the baby and how hmm. it works. And oh, baby A and baby B and baby C, because there's three babies involved. And uh, yeah, it just, well, but I also actually, I don't want to skip the scene where Crowley gets given the baby in the graveyard mm. by Haster and Liger, um, who, you know, the other two main demons that we meet throughout the book, like they're, they're like old school. They're like, they feel like, you know, when you're in a gangster film, an English gangster film and someone refers to the old firm, like that's what they are. <laughs> but know? they were never very good. Like I feel yeah. like Haster probably, if he was human, he'd be, he'd have stories about how he knew the craze, but he was never really all that good <laughs> enough to hang out with them. He just saw them once or maybe they bet on a boxing match of his because every old English gangster has got a history of boxing at some point. Mm. And they haven't done the job. They just know the manual really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, yeah. I th- they're very good at doing demon stuff in hell. But because they, they refer to the fact Crowley's like, they talk about how he's been up here too long. And he's like the only, one of the few demons who lives on earth. And you get the sort of same feeling with Aziraphale. Mm-hmm. That there's not many angels or demons who hang out on earth for any long period of time. And it's had a weird effect on both of them. <laughs> Um, yeah. You know, well, Hast is technically a duke, so he's an aristocrat. So I feel like he'd actually be very, very comfortable as a Tory politician in the House of Lords, mm-hmm. who are on both sides. Yeah, the book. It, it, it would it would make a lot of sense. Um, knows the rule book very well, is able to you know be kind of voluble about things, and definitely wears socks and sandals. <laughs> Whereas Crowley's more a demon of the people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, they're very good at head office, but they're not good at the practicalities of the nitty gritty work on the front lines of it. Because, again, it's hospitality. So, <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah. Fair. They're middle management guys. Mm. Yeah. Crowley's Tony Blair. <laughs> God, that makes perfect sense. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's, he's new labor all the way. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. That, no, I'll pay that. Oh. Um, but he takes, he, he, he takes Adam, who does not call Adam yet, but he takes him to the, the hospital, which is where we meet the chattering nuns. Mm. I love the I'm, chattering nuns. I love Sister Loquatius so much. Oh. So good. Mm. So and she's good. so British. Yeah. Every British trope about women in, you know, literature and these female characters, what do they do? How do they pull themselves up by their bootstraps? All that sort of thing. It's evident in that character. I feel like she starts out as like Hyacinth Bouquet. <laughs> And then by the end of it, she's kind of moved into a bit of um, Penelope Lively to the Manor Born style yeah. vibe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she's kind of married up and into the big house by the end of it, only, you know, with her own cash. Yeah. Although I also imagined like her like corporate training center as being a little bit like the Britas Empire, like just sort of things would go wrong. But 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 I don't think they would really. She wouldn't let that happen. <laughs> 
It's great though. And we meet the intended parents of the Antichrist, the Americans, uh, who live where did they they do they actually live in Tad no, they're just in Tadfield because they're visiting the they, uh, air base, airfield, yeah. yeah, and then he's going back to live in London because he's a cultural attaché. The Omen is clearly the main uh, Antichrist narrative that is referenced in the book. He is an American ambassador mm. to the UK. His wife gives birth to a boy, but he's told that the boy is dead, mm. and then um, the hospital chaplain says, "Hey, there's an orphan." baby that was just born whose mother died in childbirth why don't you just adopt him and you don't even have to tell your wife that your baby died and you're like that's pretty dark for a movie about the antichrist (laughs) i know right i mean like they're trying to get anyone on board why didn't they just swap the baby not tell him i think because you have to have that moment of free will where you choose to do the wrong thing and that kind of sets the whole this child is not gonna this is not gonna go well rather than just a simple swap there's an ethical argument that he is doing the right thing he's giving a home to a child that wouldn't otherwise have one he's sparing his wife the sadness of knowing that she's lost a child like there's there's an argument to be made that he's free willing a good thing the child was alive they they killed it oh but he didn't know that so in terms of the information he had he's arguably doing a good thing Mm. yeah but i think that that's kind of the the point of the whole free will thing like you you know if you think about some of the things that the angels and the the demons do, like one of the great things with Crowley is that he'll do something really minor and it just sets off these waves Mm. of awfulness. And I kind of feel like one of the points of free will is, you know, we often do things that we think are the right thing to do, but if you look back at them and you really think about all the little things that you had to do that were wrong in order for that to happen... Yeah. That whole idea that I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing something for, for, for good, actually not being for good. See, mm. that, that trick, the tricksiness. Which comes back to that idea of the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Yeah, salesman. Exactly. Yeah. Or frozen, fro- frozen salesman. Frozen salesman, which is revealed in this book, which is great. <laughs> As opposed to the Discworld hell, which is literally paved with good intentions. <laughs> Uh, which are inscribed on the steps out of the back entrance of the place. <laughs> there are a lot of echoes in this book of other Pratchett books and particularly ones written around the same time and some of the stuff about the demons and hell is is very reminiscent of what happens in Eric, the book where uh, Rincewind ends up in hell. There's a lot of similarities, which, you know, he wrote like three or four books in the year that this came out. Like it was ridiculous. So... I, there's a, you'd expect a certain amount of bleed of ideas. Like the queen tape thing. We swap the baby. And there's that great sort of, we were just mentioning how in The Omen, the other baby, we don't ever hear about them again. Mm-hmm. But in this one where there's three babies, one of which is surplus uh, to requirements, there's that nice sort of aside where it's like, it would be nice to imagine that the nuns had the baby adopted out and, and then all this sort of spiel about how he wins prizes for his tropical fish. And it's like... Maybe that's what happened, <laughs> uh, which then they come back to later on, and it's sort of slightly kind of implied that the bully that gives Adam and his friends a lot of trouble later on is maybe that baby. <laughs> I love that the payoff for Greasy Johnston. Yeah. yeah, he is so good, but it's a really lovely thing because it's this wonderful kind of a background character who is literally surplus yeah. in mm. all respects. And yet they've managed to weave him back in in very non-essential but lovely ways. Yeah. In fact, the the main kind of hint that he might be that baby is in a footnote. 
Yeah. Which I love, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like, you can believe this if you want. That's fine. It's, <laughs> we're not going to dictate canon to you. <laughs> but the other thing that I loved about Gracie Johnston was that, you know, the kids actually used him as an example for the benefits of duality. Yeah. That's true. Mm. Which is just a friggin' slogger, uh, slobber knocker when it comes to, you know, um, theology and all that sort of thing. So mm. I actually really appreciated how they used him. He did not go to waste. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that happens at this point of the book is we do meet the young versions of Anathema and Newt. Um, who don't, I mean, Newt, Newt I, 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 really reading the book, I'm like, Newt's hardly in it. Like, why is he here? <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, I like him as a character, but what, what's, why? Um, but we get those nice little character moments of, uh, Anathema reading the book under the covers and learning about the future and Newt, like, trying to make something and it just immediately breaking <laughs> under his influence, which becomes, you know, his thing later on. Um, which I thought was very cute. Uh, and it's nice to see that before we leap, you know, we don't leap. We, we do spend some time in those intervening 11 years as Aziraphale and Crowley come to their arrangement. And I kind of, I like that conversation. And, it, you know, for me, it's got real shades of, and, and I read this first, but it always reminds me now when I think about it of that moment in Buffy when Spike says, I'm going to help you stop Angel and the world because I really like it here. Like there's all these hamburgers walking around on legs. You know, he has that great speech about, I don't, why would I want to end the world? I'm a vampire. I want to go around eating people. You end the world, there's no more people. Um, and it's very similar to that. Like there's this angel and this demon. Like we like the world the way it is. We don't want it to end. Maybe we can subtly influence the Antichrist so that he won't do it, but we both have to do it so that we don't get in trouble and it's seen as one side influencing it more than the other and they send their agents along. To the wrong boy. He's having such a weird upbringing. Yeah. Whose name ends up being Warlock. Yes. <laughs> He's going to be the coolest kid in school. Isn't he? <laughs> or the, the most name? picked like, on. Well, a bit of both, you know. I, well, considering his dad's job, I don't think he's going to get picked on too much. <laughs> like the security people will turn up at the school with guns. I have visions of Warlock just being one of the most amazing emo kids because he's at about that age. It's like waking up, no, mom and dad, I'm going to my bedroom to listen to emo music. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> and then he just tells them, my really name's grumpy. He'd like to say, my name's not Warlock anymore, it's John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a kid that's straight down to Depot when he's old, 18 years old, straight in the front door, isn't it? Oh, so good. There's a great typo in my edition of the book, actually, where early on they refer to Warlock and they've inserted an extra K. So his name is Warclock. <laughs> and I'm like, now I want to make that into a character for something. <laughs> like, I don't know what it would be. A time-traveling robot, maybe. I don't know. That actually reminds me of uh, Metalocalypse because they were called Death Clock. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, man. That's cool. Okay. Yep. <laughs> does no. any does anybody else think though that Warlock ended up going to like Stanford or Harvard Business School doing an MBA and becoming one of the worst CEOs ever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now I feel really embarrassed to admit this while we're being recorded, and actually, you know, truth be told, I should have actually asked this before we started. I still actually can't work out who went where, except that Adam went to the Youngs. So yeah. So. Yeah, uh, Adam, so Adam is obviously the Antichrist. He's the yes. new baby. He, he goes to the, the youngs, youngs, but then the youngs, youngs baby is swapped 
With the attaches. With the attaches. Okay, so, there's so, Warlock. so Warlock. So is Warlock is Young's yeah. baby. Yeah, Warlock is is Mr. and Mrs. Young's baby, and then the American baby is the one that. Greasy Johnson. Yeah. The tropical and, 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 I, and I think Johnson. that that's a reference with Greasy Johnson, where he suddenly learns about American football yeah. and goes on to have this sort of stellar there American football career, and the fact that he's so much bigger than yeah. everybody else. Because I certainly remember going to the UK as a child, or even being in. in in Ireland and seeing like an American kid walk down the street and you're just like, oh my God, the size of it. <laughs> <laughs> Enormous. Um, I, I quite enjoyed the, the whole sequence, the, the bits with the nanny and the gardener. <laughs> it was just, and they seem like they're refer- like the nanny's like an evil Mary Poppins. <laughs> and then the gardener's like, do you know that film? What's that Peter Sellers film with the gardener? Who, being there. Being there. Yeah. Like he sort of reminded me a little bit of that because he saw this weirdly otherworldly he was very St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah. He was St. Francis of yeah. Assisi. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. He was. Yeah. 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 all the animals were like, you know, digging on him. And-, and he doesn't have to do anything to the garden, but no. it's just perfect. So. Do, does anybody else hear him with a kind of North Country air bar gum? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> sort yes. of voice. It's like, where, where's Francis again? I know. He's up in back paddock. <laughs> he's off with animals again. He's, off, yeah. he's up in backfield. You can't miss him. He's a leg wrapped in polythine. <laughs> <laughs> the pronunciation of polythine in that scene gets me every time. But, uh, oh, my God. That is, and, then, oh. and then, you know, I can just imagine him how to deal with the nanny. Run at it. Shouting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do like how they both feel like they've gotten nowhere. Because they're kind of counteracting each other's influence. Yeah, they go away deflated. But I think it's also the effect of being around Warlock. Mm. You know, it's not just that competing energy. It's like, oh, there's nothing special. And also he's a a really irritating kid. Yeah. (laughs) Because particularly when you get to his birthday party, you're like... You're a jerk. He's like, yeah. I don't like you at all. Kids who are mean to magicians is a special ring of hell for them. Yeah. Oh, look, when when eleven year olds want to be mean too, they are the worst. They're just because they've oh. got all of the eloquence you need to be horrible without any of the social constraint that you develop later. This is true. Mm. Uh, although that does that does remind me, we also have the dramatis personae at the start of the book. Which, oh, I love that, this, and I, lo- I love that it's written in the same script that you find actually in the front of every Shakespearean play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you get one of those fancy editions, including the missing folio ones, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's got and like yeah, just just I love it's got the little descriptions of what each character is, but for God, it just says God. And then for the apocalyptic horse persons, it also says, like, death, death, war. war. I got quite irritated at how driven home the identities of each of the four horsemen were when we first started to meet them. Like, we get that she's war. And pestilence and famine especially, I felt like that got driven home too hard with, like, and it rhymes with examine. And I was like, I got it. I got it ten pages ago. But, yeah. Yeah, I think think we could have figured that one out. You know, we rapidly approach Warlock's 11th birthday when they think, well, this is when it's going to really kick off uh, because he's going to get his hellhound and then it's only a short time until he's going to destroy the world and they're at the birthday party and Aziraphale has inserted himself as a magician. 
because he's like, I love doing actual magic. And then he can't remember how to do any of it because it's been like 50 years. <laughs> it's he's very embarrassing for him. Golden age of magic sort of tricks. And he's got all the language as well. And he sort of talks about things from 50 years ago. And it's fantastic because his patter yeah. is all learned. Well, even longer. It's more like Victorian era, isn't it, really? Yeah. yeah. It's, he's like, it's like he's performing at the Limehouse or something. <laughs> like, no, what are you doing? Um, and that, of course, all goes, you know, terribly wrong. One of the kids ends up with one of the bodyguards guns and um and then he has to turn them into water pistols so that they don't shoot each other which is a great sort of inverted hmm. uh, telegraphing of what's going to happen later because <laughs> Zerofell turns all of the real guns into water pistols uh and that is not what Crowley does <laughs> later on <laughs> Uh, which is great. I, that did not occur to me on the rear end. I've just thought of that now. That's great. Mm-hmm. After the failed birthday party, we come to, which I know is your favourite part of the book, Amy. Yes. When Dog arrives. <laughs> I, there is nothing more that I love than the arrival of Dog. And it's hilarious because it, it kind of you know mirrors so much of the book, which is, oh, I'm here for this purpose. I am this character. This is my nature. This is what I will do. And then it turns up and it's like, oh, okay, so that's not where I thought I was going to be. This is, you know, and then he hears Adam saying it's going to be a small dog, it's going to be nice and friendly and all that sort of thing, and I'm going to force it into Jasmine Cottage um, to go meet with the witch in this little, you know, vaguely holy little spot, and that's going to be the last satanic ember that just sort of burns out from him. He's like... But you're my master, so I'm just going to follow you. Everything about dogs is in that kind of thing. It's like I wanted to kill all the world. Now I kind of want to chase rabbits. That seems really interesting to me. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, again, like we talked about this in when we covered uh, some of the Discworld books where Gaspo the Wonder Dog appears, where Terry Pratchett does have this tremendous love and affection for dogs and yet, always expresses himself as a cat person, like the way he writes Death Who Loves Kittens. And he wrote a whole book about cats called The Unadulterated Cat, which is like a guide to having a proper cat. And, yeah, it's the dog characters in his books that I think stand out. And, yeah, dog's wonderful. Reminds me of my brother. My brother adopted a dog that turned up at a, um, a music festival out in the bush somewhere where they weren't allowed to have dogs and no one would, cl- no one claimed ownership of this dog. Like no one said, oh, yeah, that's our dog. So he ended up just adopting it and now it's called Doggo. <laughs> just hangs out with him and I'm like, oh, it's that dog. Oh, that's cute. Um, and also likes to chase rabbits. And, and the importance of names as well because the whole thing is like, he will give it a name and it, the name will define what it is and he calls it dog and it's a kind of, to me, about how everyone's sort of supposed to fit a role in this book, but they don't quite do it, so it's quite nice. It's yeah. sort of classic nature versus nurture stuff going mm. on in this book, which is really interesting. And they, they talk about it in the book, but by giving him the name dog, you, you've kind of given him this way of just being what he's turned into. And I can also say, like, I, I, we had a dog that sort of arrived somewhat similarly and is almost a spitting description of the dog in this, in this book. <laughs> and the dog was called Scruffy. And I'm now thinking back on it, thinking maybe Scruffy was a hellhound. Does that make <laughs> you the Antichrist? <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that, that the Antichrist might have been one of the foster children because Scruffy came with the, with the foster child. But Scruffy was unkillable. Wow. That dog ran off the roof Ooh. of our split-level house chasing a cat. So it ran into the neighbor's house, up the stairs, ran up the single-story side of the house chasing the cat down the double-story, which, by the way, dropped to sort of more of a three-story house because it was like 
there was another drop after our house. Mm. The cat veered, as cats do, and the dog just kept running off the roof. And we were on the balcony, ran off the roof, was running in the air, somehow missed impaling itself on the fence and still running in the air and landed running and just kept going and had there was nothing wrong with it. Good news for Thelma and Louise, really, when you think about it. (laughs) Wow. What a cat as well. That was very calculating. It's intense. Um, Yeah, cats were bastards. (laughs) But smart ones. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, the arrival of the dog also really is when we first properly get to meet Adam Mm. and them, which is such a good name for a gang of kids. Like, I love that, that how they, they go through the etymology of that, which is like, well, we had lots of names, but it doesn't matter what we call ourselves because everyone else in the town just refers to them. Oh, it's them. <laughs> so they adopt that as their official name, which, I, oh, it's just great. But they're just, they're a lovely bunch of kids. But it, And they kind of do harken back to that sort of 1950s mm. idea of like an Enid Blyton almost kind of, you know, adventures in the quarry kind of kids. But then they have a few more modern things about them too. I couldn't stop imagining them as the kids from It, like the original TV series of it. Of mm. It. Yeah, <laughs> I would actually be way more interested in – I love It, don't get me wrong. Mm. Um, there's so many great bits to the book. The It's. The It's. Um, <laughs> however, would it have been immeasurably improved by swapping out the losers for the them? Mm. Yes. Yes, it would. <laughs> Pepper would have been very good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And they, they, they sort of fill those archetypes of kid roles, but in slightly odd ways, which I also kind of enjoyed. Wensleydale was too real to me. Oh, my God, I was just about to say that. Oh, I was just like, and he's correcting things, and he gets like the nerdy magazine, and he likes organising things. I was like, oh, I feel really seen, but not in a positive way. <laughs> <laughs> oh. He's great. And He's then, cheesy. And then Brian, who's like, it's described at one point, it was like the only comics he ever read, or the only things he ever read were comics that had the words like bam and thwap in them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yep, I've met those kids for sure. You know those little kids that just always have that one trail of mucus that just never stops dripping from their nose and they're just nuggety dirty. Yeah. It's Brian. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and Pepper, who's who's great. And I love that she's got, there's that bit where, you know, because she's very archetypal tomboy, mm. but then there's those bits where she kind of secretly admits that she really likes the ponies that she got for Christmas as well. But she, <laughs> no one's allowed to know that because that's like, that's not. And she's got a Lord of the Rings name, which is so Yay! good. Yeah, she totally does. Yeah, that's great. That's great. We don't get, there's not very many overt Lord of the Rings references in Pratchett's work, but it's nice to see one. But it reminds me, oh, so I went to a hippie school. And um, uh, this was after I wasn't doing very well at the convent school. Um, And so it was amazing because you would go from a school where the children of former nuns who were named after the New Testament and then you went to another school where they were basically called after characters from Lord of the Rings and there were a lot of Galadriels and Pippins and Peregrines and... Yeah. Mm. Well, I, grew, I grew up near, you know, in hippie country in northern New South Wales. So, like, I went to school with kids called Sky and Rainbow and Odin. Yeah. You know, it was great. <laughs> um, although, although the most hippie name a friend of mine has, his middle name's a Rainbow Thunderchild. <laughs> <laughs> I was always very impressed by that. It'd be a great band name, too. That is good. <laughs> yeah. I'll pay that. You wouldn't be able to hack his password. 
but yeah, the them are hanging out and having adventures. They they have they, they have these great adventures. Like once Dog shows up and everybody's trying to figure out what's going on with the Antichrist. We don't know where he is. Um, although Hell doesn't seem to cotton on that he's not where he's supposed to be because they just um, they just ask Crowley and Crowley's like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, the dog, big, big dog, big, big dog's here. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Oh, that's it. Yep, yep, yep. See, I've got to go. Bye. And I love that he's got that relationship with Hell as well where he's like, he's a bit like Get Smart. He's in some ways very competent at his job, but also he's always getting everything wrong and he's in trouble, but he somehow gets away with it. Uh, but then when it's important, like he can punch out the spies, no problem and shoot the bullseye. Like he's actually, yeah, he's, he's that weird combination, but yeah, that this is where once dog shows up and they start having their adventures, this is where it sort of edges towards the apocalypse and the arrival of Adam's powers. And we find out what kind of kid Adam is. And he is, he's that interesting that even when you first meet him, there's those sort of little glimpses of, you know, there's something special about him. Like people just see him as a leader for no mm. reason. And there's a reference to the the way he plays video games, which is mm. like he sort of boots it up, watches watches it for about five minutes and then just plays it and scores it a perfect score and puts it away and goes, oh, I've done that one. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> what just happened? He's amazing. I think that um, especially with getting a sense of Adam's character but also how he responds to things. So he feels incredibly responsible for and protective of them and making sure that they have entertainment. And while he doesn't mind doing it, you also get this sense that it's actually, God, it's a lot of work to keep them on track and to keep them entertained. And that comes into play later on at the end when he makes his final decision about what the hell's going to happen. (laughs) Uh, Pardon the pun. Um, And then also, you know, he has this amazing independent logic that is just so kid-like and at the same time obstinate as heck. Yeah. So he's an 11-year-old then? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Yeah, no, as, you know, mother of a 14-year-old, yes, can confirm. Why do you think they picked 11 as the age that he would bring about the end of the world? Again, I think it's partly because of the timing. Like if he's turning 11 around the turn of the millennium, which seems Mm. to be the sort of suggested timing. It's an interesting age too. One thing I've observed that is very consistent in kids who are around 10 or 11 is that when they start to hit that sort of prepubescent stage and a lot of them become a lot more tired like their body's doing a lot of Mm. weird things and they become very apathetic in a way that the them are not uh where you know they're the kind of kids when it's it's around that age when you ask kids oh yeah what's your favorite band and they go i don't know right and you're like yes you do you like listen to them 50 hours a day (laughs) like what (laughs) you've yeah you know and they don't sort of register that enthusiasm they're too their, their brains are too busy doing other stuff I always thought it was like the suggestion that between the age of 10 to 13, they're, they're coming into powers and developments in their body, but at the same time they're still malleable, whereas once they turn into those you know, adolescent years, it is literally uncontrollable. Yeah. You just kind of hanging on yeah. <laughs> following them wherever they go but actually the interesting thing is if you look at a lot of this probably sort of you know explains a hell of a lot of my teenage years um and what i was reading if you read into poltergeist cases the one thing that always ties them together is they're focused on adolescence mm. because they feed off sort of that chaotic yeah. energy 
which those those kids, there's a lot of chaos going mm. on, sort of like, you know, emotionally, physically. But I think the other good thing about having them at 11 is that that's still at that time where people can introduce you to new things and you're like, this mm. is magical. So I just have this, the thinking of Adam suddenly finding out about what the occult is and that yeah. head mm. under the doona link. You know, I think once you're like 12 or 13, that kind of stuff starts to become, you start to become a bit too cool for it. Mm. And in the English mm. system too, 11, that's when you're finishing up primary school, you're going to go into, you know, high school because they're starting a little bit earlier, you're going to go into high school kind of, it's, it's the, yeah, you're right, it's right on the cusp of all those big age. changes, yeah. That's the last possible point of so-called innocence. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was thinking as well because it's kind of where you – before you're 11, you still realize it's bad stuff, but I feel like it sort of, you internalize it. You start to internalize it as things that could affect you and your loved ones. And you see the world as a bigger place, roughly, when you start to go from 10 to 11 kind of thing. So it's, again, the point of innocence is going away. And it's interesting because also like Harry Potter starts at 11 as well because of mm. school. And this is just like a turning point in terms of, I think your world is small and your own family, your own experience. And then it starts to grow bigger as he learns from Anathema, um, when she gives him all the magazines, that there's other stuff going on and he starts to be concerned about issues and that kind of thing. So, And yeah. then the other thing too is the way that he's resolutely kept Tadfield as this absolute perfect microcosm and he he, he never wants to leave. Like mm. all of the others are like, what are we going to do when we grow up and we're going to leave and he's going to stay in Tadfield because it's perfect and he loves it and it's idyllic. Yeah. you still got that. I think I have to say though I I don't like the notion of childhood innocence I don't like mm. the notion that children are innocent mm. because they're not mm. I, I think that does them a great disservice and takes away a great amount of sort of thinking about the kinds of decisions that you make as a child in yeah. a literature sense though I think often in literature it's used as a turning point mm. whether it's reflective yeah. of reality or not then there's that whole idea that certainly by the time the book is written um, you know you've got that idea that the whole idea of childhood is an invention of the last few centuries, mm. whereas previously people just were born and then they got older and nobody really worried about when they developed certain traits or when they had certain stages of their mental and physical development. It just, just was get a in thing the mind, that happened. Yeah. yeah, and then more recently you had the, the whole idea about teenagers as a separate category of person based on their well, age range. Thank wouldn't, you, James wouldn't Dean. This, wouldn't these kids, if they're, they're turning 11 and 12 in... in um, the new millennium, which I, which I think is actually really good because that figures into a whole bunch of mythology around what the sort of new millennium is, a lot of apocalyptic thinking that happens around every thousand years and it sort of reflects in literature more broadly, so that makes sense. But I think one of the interesting things about them is that isn't this the time at which the notion of the tween was born? It was oh. around that. It yeah, around that so point. it's like we've got children, teenagers, and around the 90s the tweens were born and famously gave us the Olsen twins. The in-betweenies. The tween twins. <laughs> as someone who turned 11 in 2000, um, so I guess roughly the same age as he was, I remember being very scared um, on the precipice of the thing because the news was talking about Y2K and all the things that would go wrong. And I knew enough to be able to grasp that, that bad things might happen but my brain interpreted that as they were definitely going to happen because I couldn't understand the issue fully. And I related quite well to how he picked up bits and pieces from the magazine. It was like, oh, well, I'm going to run with it with my imagination and catastrophize it. So I feel like that's kind of feeds mm. in as well. I think there was actually a hell of a lot of affection and understanding of kids and especially how kids 
will take from real life and use it to expand their worldview. Like Wensleydale went to the office with his dad once, completely built an entire philosophy on how adults will work and talk with each other, um, even if he reads the newspaper every evening and he just doesn't really understand it. I thought that there was just, you know how you were saying before, you feel seen. And it's like, mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pratchett's own daughter, Rihanna, would have been 14 around the time he was writing this book. So mm. he would have just been through this stage of her growing up before he's written this. And I don't think, I don't think Gaiman had any kids at this stage. Um, cause this is still when he's deep in writing The Sandman and, mm-hmm. um, relatively early in his career. But it's, um, yeah, I, it, it's an interesting insight, as is any time Pratchett writes about kids, uh, into what he thinks about kids and how they work and he does i i think he he he's really good at it you know because he later on goes on to write books that are for kids or although he was writing truckers around the same time as this but he wasn't writing about children he was writing for them or he was writing about them in books that were for adults um and it's only a bit after this that he writes the first johnny book um only you can save mankind which is the first one he writes where the protagonist is a child and that's uh, it's an interesting distinction, but I think, you know, there's so much of this book is about these 11 year old kids and it's definitely not a book written for 11 year old kids, but we all love and identify with these kids. Uh, but look, you know, it, as, as, uh, he starts to, you know, have these adventures and his powers start to awaken, the games that they're playing start to become real. And it's not long before he's influenced heavily by meeting Anathema, who does not realize who he is at first even though she's been looking for the source of the end of the world based on Agnes's prophecies. And she's a, I, I love Anathema <laughs> as a character. And it's such a weird concept to go, you are the latest in a long line of witches who own the only book in the world which accurately predicts the future, if only you can work out what the hell she's talking about. <laughs> Harkening back to that earlier scene where she's reading it as a young girl under the bed covers, and you're like, what are you learning from this book? <laughs> I love it. I feel like I was Anathema as a child. <laughs> <laughs> um, grew grew up with quite a hippie mother who was into that sort of stuff as well. So I feel like that was definitely that. Yeah, no, under the covers with better. But I love that scene where she is reading that and then thinking about Adam later on in the book, doing the same thing yeah. in a way with her occultist magazine. So I feel like she's got a real particular affinity for that character as two people who kind of have a destiny that they're supposed to fulfil. And an initiation, too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, is quite an interesting sort of like – but, I mean, I, and I love the way – I love the way that she can't find him because, you know, whenever you think you've nailed him down, your thoughts just slide off him. <laughs> like I just like – it's just like this sort of like just what is that play? Oh, no, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got two questions and one is a two-parter. Um, one is, does Anathema have free will if she has to live off this book of prophecies and feels like she has to do everything in it? Second question in two parts is, is Newt a good match for her? And part two, I got more of a Adam and Anathema vibe in a Padme Anakin way. <laughs> wow. Okay. okay. I'm jumping in on that last one because hello, yes, I'm very, well, not so much Adam and Anathema, even though there is this almost sibling-esque relationship. Like Padme and Anakin, who's <laughs> and Anakin's kind of the Antichrist. Well, I, like, I think I, it's what really amazes me about it is that I think at one point Crowley says he's not 
hell and he's not the devil incarnate. He's not God incarnate. He's human incarnate. I think, no, he's device incarnate <laughs> of these really funny, different, obstinate people who are going to do their own thing because they know it's always going to, you know, relatively turn out okay. Um, I, as to the free will thing, if I can, also, sorry, Newton, no, there's no yeah. way. He's a wet blanket. Uh, there's just nothing there. They what only did you? it because they had to Armageddon it on. Yeah, no, no, no. Thank you. I'm here for that. Yeah. I'm here for that. Um, I vaguely kind of dipping into my own personal history here, um, was raised Catholic, was, but however, come from a long line of Irish Catholics. And if you're listening to this and you don't know why I'm making that distinction, I'm trying to tell you we're superstitious, crazy people. True, can uh, confirm. Yeah. Irish Catholic. Yeah. So I was raised being dragged around to witches as a small kid. I was put in a psychic circle when I was 16 or 17 to get, as they say, appropriate training. So. <laughs> wow. <laughs> This explains a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, it really, it actually really, it really, really does. I'm still really upset that no one approached me to play Agnes. Um, but anywho, but the whole thing about that is that it does actually give you this amazing almost liberation when it comes to the whole concept of free will because you think, actually, no, I, I am still, I still have free will. It's just if it works out, then it was meant to be, mm. which is that almost that kind of strange little caveat that you just sort of cling to um after i i kind of want to talk about newt a little bit because i barely remembered him when i came back to read the book it's been quite a while for me and i wanted to like him and there are certain things about him that i found quite likable but then the more that i found out about him the less and less likable he became and particularly and this is something that is also true of a lot of pratchett's earlier books he kind of gets it much better at it later on but anytime he's talking about his feelings for Anathema or how, what he thinks of her or how he describes her in his own head, I'm a bit like, it's not okay. Or he's Dude. definitely read the game. <laughs> I don't think he fully understood it, though. Yeah, he read it, but he didn't do it right. Uh, yeah, so I, he's an interesting... And also, he's hardly in the book, and he really only has one purpose. Yeah, I don't really see them staying together after the book. Who, who's that really grey character in the British version of The Office and he wears that kind of grey coat? Oh, yeah, it. with the white straw Is it Gareth? Yeah, the white yeah, straw yeah, yeah, hair yeah, yeah, and, like, yeah. the, that, those, those it, awful kind Gareth? of... Sh- yeah, Gareth. No, the one you mean. Like, yeah, yeah. I've, that's who Newt is. Yeah, right. He, yeah. And he's just kind of... He's greyish. Mm. Yeah, he's sort of distilled boredom as well as distilled you know, anti-technology, <laughs> like the, the, he is the anathema to technology. Uh, but you know, Let's take it back. I don't think he would read the game. I just think he's someone who'd think about getting out of the library, but never picks up his reservation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll pay that. Huh. Yeah. Look, I think they, they all kind of, you know, represent different things, you know, inertia and, you know, comfort and, you know, leadership and things like that. Newt is mediocrity. Mm. If that was like a vice or a virtue of the seven virtues or whatever, his would be mediocrity. He's, he's completely, he feels superfluous. Yeah. yeah. But then this is, I mean, I think this is the point in the book where 
there's so many different things going on and you do start to question do we need all of these things? Because like new, it feels like Shadwell, for example, who's an amazing character. Yeah. Oh, but it feel, his purpose in the book really is just to sort of, you know, he gets Newt onto, like he recruits Newt so that Newt goes to Tadfield and then, you know, he, and he like gets in the way of Aziraphale, but then he just sort of tags along with Madame Tracy at the end. He doesn't really do anything he's worth it for the comic relief though yeah like i think he's just yeah it it would be a very sort of dry section of the book without his accent and his feeble sort of complaints about madam tracy but yeah who was that old dude that adrian mole used to go and visit all the time oh burt Burt baxter yeah yeah Yeah. but i always feel like there's that burt baxter vibe with shadwell i Mm. love i actually love him i actually feel very kind of yeah, I know exactly what you represent and I love it. Um, now we've got these different threads. We've got Crowley and Aziraphale trying to figure out what's going on, where the Antichrist is, and getting nowhere. Like they go, although this is, that is when they go back to the hospital, which is, used to be the nunnery, mm. Uh, mm. and discover that it is now a corporate training camp to figure out, you know, where is he? Uh, and there's corporate training going on and they get shot with. Um, paint guns. <laughs> and then Crowley's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna get them for this," <laughs> and he turns all their guns into real guns, which is so good. And then and Aziraphale's like, "That's not really okay." And he's like, "Fine, they'll all have miraculous escapes." <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't on the table previously. Yeah. I have to say though, there was this. There's this awful part of me where they all get turned into guns and they're on like this middle management <laughs> retreat in, in, for these ones, where I'm almost like, "Yes." Die, die, die. <laughs> like, the less of you in the world there is, the better it will be, um, which is terrible. I'm an awful person. It's true. Well, the book says there's no such thing as an awful person, really. Have you met me? <laughs> Recently. <laughs> uh, but it is a great, it's a great sequence, a very, very memorable. Um, but they don't find it in anything because, like, the, the nun who's still there, even under the influence, is like, no, we burned all the records. I couldn't, I don't know. As far oh, as I know, he went. burned the records. Oh, that's right. Because yeah, Ligo Hester. set, Hester and Ligo, yeah, set the mm-hmm. fire on the, yeah. When I was rereading it again this Christmas, I, every year I'm surprised at how short it is. Yeah. Because in my head, it's this massive, epic kind of definitely done by Oliver Stone or Michael Bay. It's a yeah. Michael Bay scene, right? And it definitely in my head, it goes on for hours and hours, if not days, and people are digging trenches. I, I just, you know, there's an entire movie just in that one scene. I'd have loved to see like reason. 10 more pages of that and like taken away from the Newt Cuts Up newspapers section. Yes, God, yes. Because mm. it just—it felt like that went on forever. Because I was about halfway through this book for about a week, and I'm like, "Where is my time going?" Because I'm solidly reading this, and it felt like I'd been reading the same thing over and over again. And it was just those scenes, and mm. all just so that he and Anathwa could have those conversations about knowing what was in the papers because she does it as well. Mm. And that suddenly, despite however many pages, he could become actually competent mm. in giving advice or insight to propel the plot along. It didn't make sense to me. But I did want to say there's this really beautiful kind of British tradition um, that's very tied into the labour movement and the concept of the welfare state of these strong women 
who just build themselves up. They may not have come from much, but they access the free education. They access the the job centres and the training centres and all that sort of, and put in for self-improvement and then they build themselves up where they're not, they're not necessarily super flashy, but there's this lovely competency and success to them. And for me, you see a lot of that in this book. It's that, and it's not something I necessarily see in US literature or elsewhere, but there's this lovely strength to these women, which isn't performative. Mm. Mm. Agatha Christie has a lot of those, but about 50% of the time she marries them off to a derp. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like why? Uh, yeah. Because you also you have Madame Tracy as well, mm. who is not not quite in that mould, but, you know, she's an independent woman. She's yeah. like she's got her own business. She's putting money away and she's looking after this complete no-hoper of a weirdo <laughs> Uh, who lives downstairs or next door or whatever quite the arrangement is. I'm not 100% sure. I think they both live above like a shop, don't yeah. they? Yeah, the Rajit shop. Yeah. yeah. And that's, a, I think, a similar, it's on a sort of a, a continuum with that. Mm. Why would she go with this guy at the end? Because he's know. there. Yeah she, yeah, she doesn't necessarily have the hugest of ambitions, does she? It's mm. like anathema is like, well, this is what I've been given. But she has enough wherewithal to sort of use it and to improve herself. Um, you have the same with Sister Loquacious. But then with her, you've just sort of got, I just want a nice little bungalow somewhere that we can call Shambhala or Shangri-La or Dun Roman. <laughs> and wouldn't that be a nice life for a Shadwell? Yeah. yeah. I think it doesn't matter who the guy is in the scenario. Yeah. Like yeah, she just wants someone around. She doesn't expect him to do much except maybe some gardening, you know, yeah. just be there. <laughs> so she's got someone to talk to. I think one of the things actually though I kind of object to is in in the book is the fact that all of the women with the exception of Agnes Nutter end up somehow subservient to these dull as dishwater. Derps. Derps. Yeah. yeah, again, you know, like mm. so Madame Tracy's loftiest goal is to like have a Shadwell and live in a house and take care of him mm. as a good little housewife and effectively that's what they do to Anathema as well. I mean, again, like I don't know, I don't feel like it's set a set in stone for her. Like I think mm. she accepts that there's this prophecy. To go back to the question of does she have free will, I think – yeah, but it intersects with these prophecies. And because you don't understand what the prophecies mean often until after they happen. But she also, I think, accepts that oh, this guy seems nice enough. Although there is that standard kind of disconnect where she's described by him as quite, as very attractive. And he's described by her as, well, he's not really anything special to look at, but he's I guess tall, he'll dark, do. dark, but he's not handsome. And as you yeah. know, if you're a woman, you can't be attractive and intelligent. Yeah, yeah this is true. Yeah. That's getting a bit too ambitious in life. But on the free will front, because later, mm. like skipping forward to the end, she's presented with o- mm. the option to read the further prophecies and it's ambiguous whether she does, doesn't Oh, no, doesn't they it? burn it. Oh, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, yeah they That's, don't read it. So that's, again, so is that because she didn't have free will before? I feel like she... Or has more free will now. Felt like she didn't have free will and also because she had these accurate prophecies that were effectively saying the world is coming to an end. So, you know, everything that you do is in some way set in stone at that point. The world is coming to a, a to a definite end because the prophecies end. Yeah. Which means there's nothing after this time. 
And these are accurate prophecies. And, and yet so, their their job in the scheme of it is really to kind of prevent it from happening. And it's so it's like her motivation for being involved is a little bit muddy, I think, because it's like, well, do you think there's nothing you can do to prevent it? Or is your whole point that you think there is something you can do because at the point the prophecies end, suddenly you've got free will and you can do mm. anything. Mm. So it's that's a little bit. And I think that's probably left a bit muddy on purpose. But also, yeah. again, I don't think they necessarily would pull out the metaphysics of the book to the nth degree because it's mostly supposed to be a bit of a piss take. I hope they never tell Aziraphale that they burned it, though, because that would hurt him on a deep level. <laughs> oh, yeah, he'd be so sad. Yeah. Oh, Agnes has a plan for it. Oh, but when his bookstore burns down, I was like, oh, this is so sad because it's all his books that he's been collecting for, like, hundreds of years. So yeah. I love, though, what it's all replaced with in the end. I miss that. Oh, it's, it gets, yeah. It's, it's replaced with like, like kids' books. Because <laughs> Adam, like Adam's power edition. kind of puts it yeah. all back the way that uh, it was, except what he imagines would be the best books in a bookshop. In a bookshop, yeah. But all first editions is fine. Yeah, they're all rare. Yeah, it's great. Um, well, look, we're getting to the point now where, the, you know, all these forces are kind of converging. Three um, buddy cop films and the four find outers and dog. Yeah. All merging into a super crossover. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is also the part of the book where we meet the um, four apocalypse persons. Um, Horse riders? No, they're uh, motorcyclists. Motor of men? Well, I like the I like the riders of the apocalypse. Yeah. I like that they use the term motorcyclists because it's mm. nice and non-gendered. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they are. And um, there's three of them that we meet. And it's interesting that in this book, the one we learn the least about and spend the least time with is death when he's such a major character in all the other Discworld books. But the other three, are, I, I, they're great. Mm. I really, I love them. They're so good. And they just, it's just sort of implied that they don't really have to go around causing the things that they do. They're just sort of just filling in the time until their job, uh, mm. which is kind of great. <laughs> I sort of like that a lot. But I also like the fact that they, it's not necessarily that they mean to do it, but it's just that it happens whenever they're around. So yeah. certainly I don't feel like there's any sort of active part on, on the part except of pest, uh, so Except famine. Famine, yeah, loves oh, it. Oh, famine adores it, doesn't he? Famine's like, he's just really into it. It's he like he's turned it into his hobby, whereas war just sort of wanders around the world and like wars happen and she just watches them. <laughs> and same with pollution. He just sort of hangs out and... Shit goes wrong. Pollution loves it too. I think yeah. more so than war does. Like war doesn't not love it. But. I, f- I feel like war doesn't have an option, and like, and she's basically mm. gone. What's the best job that I can have that's that's going to fit in around this thing that happens? And she's like war correspondent. <laughs> she yeah. doesn't fight in the wars, which I thought was an interesting choice, well, because she, famine causes famine on purpose. Yeah, and then you've got uh, you know pollutions causing pollution and reveling in it. And then she just sort of turns up and the war happens. But it, it, the sort of classic depictions of war would have, you know, war with the sword getting involved, like at the front forefront. But if you're fighting in a war, you have to pick a side, don't you? Because like, even if you yeah. like, keep switching sides, you're still impacting it either way. Whereas I feel like war is there for the war, not to help one that's, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. And to get a mother courage on and profit from it somehow. I love death playing the fruit machine. Oh my god, the trivia machine! Oh, that's great. And the running Elvis joke through the book that yeah, like pays off so really great. well in that. I never touched him. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 so good. And he, he constantly like for most of that that bit at the end when they get together, he's wearing the motorcycle mm. outfit and he never takes the helmet off. And that's just such a spooky kind of 
Like it, it's kind of like that really works. Whereas there's a there's a Doctor Who episode, drink oh. again, everyone, uh, where there's a bad guy character who's like it's just like a dude in motorcycle leathers wearing a motorcycle helmet. from Planet Zavirax. Yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, no. uh, and they call him a. It's just a slab. It's just yeah. like an animated thing, and it never takes the helmet off, so you never know what it looks like. And it's like just obviously, it's a really cheap costume, but you can just imagine if they they keep that for the TV show. That it's going to be really spooky the way that he never takes it off. Was that, um, what's that band? Is it Daft Punk? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, can I just pitch in on this point when it comes to costuming choices? War's outfit for getting on the motorbike was terrible. The color clashing, bad. I just have to say that. I'm sorry. Well, written by two men whose idea of fashion is just to wear all black. So, you know. But that would be appropriate because they're the four bikers of the apocalypse, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And can we all just get behind the names that the actual bikers gave themselves? Oh, yeah. I have, like, post-it notes in those pages. Oh, my God, I love it so, We're going to come back to that, I feel. It is hilarious, though. And it's, it's, yeah, all those minor inconveniences of the apocalypse. (laughs) It's pretty great. Uh, I mean, what would your your apocalypse name be? Take a moment to think. We'll, th- we'll come back to that at the end. I think oh, that's a good question. What slow walking people in the pavement, <laughs> or slow slow swimming people in the medium swimming lane. I feel like you and I might have to get together and start a certain apocalypse. Just mm. yeah, my mine would be um, people who are spatially impaired. Mm-hmm. Mine would be people who try and improve upon your tweet in the mentions. Oh my god, yes. Oh, or who explain your one. joke to you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think mine would have to be people who ask questions about the plot whilst watching the film. Oh, drives me up the wall. I'm like, if you just shut up and paid attention, you'd know the answer to every single one of these questions. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, feel you. Don't do that. Uh, oh, there you go. We don't need to leave it till the end. We, yeah, we answered it already. <laughs> to get back to the color scheme, though, like they didn't choose those color schemes. Those are the biblical color schemes because, as as up to, I'm I'm school, I'm telling two Irish Catholics what's in Revelations. That's a ridiculous thing to say. Uh, but and I'm telling you that that many shades of red is not good. Yeah, I agree. That's that's fair. But they, that's why she's in red though, because she's in red, I guess. But it's only the horse that's. Oh, I don't know. It's well, the, the, well, her horse in 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 Revelations is red, so it yeah. makes sense. Yeah, and pollutions is what pollution pestilence. Yeah, this is why poor old pestilence. Yeah, who I I remembered there being more discussion of pestilence in the book than there is. It's really just one footnote. Yeah, that mm. says he gave up when penicillin came along. But I feel like the book kind of like I know I've talked a bit about when the book is set, but I actually feel like they've tried to write it in a way that doesn't pin it down to a particular time so they've never mentioned any years apart from the 14th century which we don't we won't talk about but uh they i think they've tried to make it a bit timeless but the thing that really dates it are a lot of the the references which like quite a lot of them are surprisingly still relevant now but there are quite a few that do feel dated and i think that the the pestilence one is is one because it's like I gave up when penicillin came in and now you're like, well, there's a lot of people not vaccinating their kids. Like, me, mm-hmm. like I feel like pestilence would be on the scene, like at least as a minor character, like trying to, I could make a comeback. I could make a comeback. And you're like, no, don't make a comeback. Like I, I feel like that would be a thing. And yet, you know, pollution is still the much bigger worry for us now. And pestilence in- is just off schmoozing celebrities to make them spruik anti-vax. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think pestilence is doing really, really well in countries we don't talk about a lot. 
True. Mm. And we don't talk about a lot of countries in this book apart from the UK. I wish they didn't talk about Australia in this book, though. <gasps> oh, oh, so oh, wish yeah. they did not. That is so, so embarrassing. And look, we're getting, we're getting to that section because, you know, Anathema gets the lift from Aziraphale and Crowley as they are heading home, having failed to find Adam. Um, he <laughs> over-repairs his bicycle and she leaves the copy, the one existing copy of Agnes Nutter's prophecies in the book, which Aziraphale grabs and starts reading through because he realizes what it is. He knows, of course, exactly what it is. He's a is a dealer in rare antique books um, and spends like several cuts back to him's of reading the book and doing nothing else. And it's just, I love that there's that description of what's happened with his cup of tea, like, or his cocoa, like his yeah. cocoa goes cold uh, and then it goes ice cold and then it's got a layer of dust on it and then he's got a layer of dust on him because <laughs> yeah. he hasn't moved and he starts doing all this weird angelic like working out of mm. stuff uh, and then Shadwell turns up because he's one of his employers um, to try and get some money out of him so he can go to Tadfield having realised that there's shit going on there um, and sees him trying to commune with heaven and decides he's a demon and uh, like pushes him into the circle which sends him up to heaven and he's he's disembodied which is where the sequence where we're kind of worried about with good reason comes from because he's trying to get back to earth and ends up entering these various mediums around the world until he can find somewhere close to home and i think like the first one is is uh like a you know, a, a voodoo practitioner. Mm. First one's the Australian one, I think, and then it's the voodoo practitioner. Oh, well. Yes, yes, oh, that's yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, who is Ooh. not very, I mean, it talks about, it's a walkabout, and he's doing some sort of spiritual thing, and we're like, how much, I mean. It's like a lazy read of a Wikipedia article. Mentions or, something about dreaming. Mm, yeah. yeah. Getting in touch with the ancestors. Yeah, it's a bit. It's very poorly done. Look. It's less American gods, more American dolts. It's just, it's very, very badly done. Yeah. 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 yeah it's not great. Um, and it's, and it's meant to be, and like, you know, if it was, if they put it in the TV show, if they have something equivalent, which they might, who knows? Um, it's like, it'll be like a, a shot that's like 10 seconds long of like someone talking to themselves and then incongruously speaking with Aziraphale's voice for a comedic effect. Can we just talk about the actual political implications of an Indigenous Australian talking with their with their accent and then switching to a highly colonised mm. British accent. English? Yeah. Yeah. We've been is... throwing a homophobic slur at them. I know. Oh! It was, it was oh, really, yeah. really, really, like the homophobia really stuck out. There's a like few a things lot of homophobic mm, because in the- there's also that moment in the at um, Warlock's face. birthday party where um, one of the kids calls a zero fail a faggot. Mm. Yeah. They actually say it, and I'm like, "This is not what I'm used to in a but, Pratchett book." Mm. Yeah, and then it also happens again at the um, the yeah. American base where the the soldier has that discussion about faggots and the whole yeah. And look, you know, they're doing that thing where they're clearly they're, the characters they're writing that are doing it. They're not trying to suggest that this is acceptable, but at the same time, they're using that language, and you're like, "It's a shock." Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not funny. Yeah. Not great. Mm. Yeah. And they go back to it quite, as you say, a couple of times where it's less than about, it's, you know, you obviously see then that it's less about the characters being portrayed accurately or whatever mm. and it's more laziness and, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Shadwell who consistently refers to Aziraphale as the southern pansy. It's like, yeah. well, I mean, look, that 
that I mean that does seem accurate to the character, I suppose, mm. in in that sense, rather than the as you said, like the real thumbnail sketch you get of these characters who are inhabited by Aziraphale. What would you do with a modern day adaptation of this? Would you do? Would you make those? Probably changes? not. Depends on when it's well. Set I mean, as well. you would change yeah. them. I think. I think you'd leave think them out you'd... because they're not very. I mean, you might. I think the one you would leave in would be Shadwell. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Like yeah. I can't imagine him calling Aziraphale anything other than a southern pansy. Mm. He's tethered so much to his character and yeah. things like that that mm. he's a bit nasty. And, all, what he calls, yeah, um, yeah, his neighbor all the time. And you do have that. Yeah. And the other one that is that is not really. It's actually kind of nice in its way. Is when Anathema does get the lift from Crowley. And Aziraphale, and she's trying to work out what's the deal with these two weird guys driving around. And Crowley calls Aziraphale Angel, and she's like, "Oh, that makes sense. Right, yeah. I feel safe now." Yeah, and you're like, that actually makes That's okay. That mm. that works, and I think that would still work now. But mm. a lot of the other stuff, yeah, yeah. Um, although I did, I did really enjoy the televangelist part. <laughs> yes, that was good. Can I admit this is a section that I often scan and just sort of go, uh huh, uh huh. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm reading it. I'm totally reading it. I'm not just flicking through these mm. pages. I mean, it's I'm very. The uh, there's a lot of bits in this book that feel very Douglas Adamsy, but not in the way that other Pratchett does, where you know clearly some of the jokes are, are influenced or similar because mm. they do have. They don't have a very similar style, but they have similarities. But in this book, it feels like. Because and I've said this on the podcast before, Adams is a fantastic humorist, but he's not a great plot writer. And so a lot of the stuff in his books really only happens for the sake of, oh, I've got this great idea for a gag. And it feels like the Aziraphale stuff is very much that. Like we mm. we get, it, it takes him a while to come back. We don't need to see him coming back into all these different people. It's just because he wants to do these gags about here's an incongruous thing, you know. And, uh, and I, I think it is totally something you could leave out. Mm. Um, I probably I wouldn't leave out the uh, evangelical one though. I mean, you only need one to make the gag work. Well, exactly, and to show how it's taking him a while to find the right body to enter. And of course, the body that he does eventually enter, which is the right one, is Madame Tracy's in the middle of her giving a séance. Uh, where, <laughs> where normally, you know, she is not a real medium. Uh, she's she's a table rapper, uh, but. Aziraphale finds his way in somehow. Anyway, I'm not sure that she's not a real medium because she actually does say that she figured out early on that most people go to mediums to feel better about things they don't want to know the truth, which implies that she knows the truth. Mm. Mm. So she's yeah. filtering it. So she's filtering it for people and she's she's figured out that they want a little bit of the table wrapping and the and the this and mm. that, which does imply she might be a proper medium. She's just, you know, making some cash and knows how to do it. It's evidence that when Ronald comes in and says the real things, whereas she's been saying, (laughs) that is interesting. I I think you can read, well, I I didn't read it like that, but that's, that's interesting. I think that's, that's yeah. But um, I guess for me, I I just felt like she was a very, she's a self-aware medium. Like she's not one who believes that she can do it when she can't. Like uh, she just knows that it's not real i don't know i i got that so, vibe from it but it could so in other way. words she's an actual medium yeah <laughs> um because i feel like as as we've discussed this irish catholic thing is that mm. i feel like there is a bit about me being a medium where it's it isn't something that you just sort of sit down and control in in that way it's definitely something that kind of comes out of nowhere otherwise why would why would all these prophetesses and all these people go insane from the voices mm-hmm. if it was a thing you could control mm. Mm. why would you go insane? And, of course, the job of a prophet is to be deliberately obtuse so that you didn't get your head knocked off when it when it went wrong, mm. you know. 
Which is why Agnes was so good at hiding it from heaven and hell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's oh, that's a good point. Because because everybody else's yeah, all the other prophets sort of got found out, and mm. we don't want you to yeah write that down. Meanwhile, the ones who did the crap writing did the best selling books. Yeah, <laughs> true. Which which again then goes back to Madame Tracy. It's like the ones who learned how to write it, how humans want to read mm. it, mm. and not actually do the real stuff. Mm. So I think there's a really good connection between Madame Tracy and Agnes. Mm. In that in that respect, yeah, that's true. I think that the other thing there's connection to there is there are definitely shades of Mrs. Cake in um, mm. in Madame Tracy, who is a medium character from the Discworld books. Mm-hmm. I have um, a, a witch over in Britain who does the odd bit of work for me, and you can tell she'll send me an MP3 after the work's done. You can tell when she's into her work. It's, she's best voices. Hello, love. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then she'll go through all the you know, spells or information that I need, et cetera, et cetera, not one for typing. But um, when she's not into it, yeah. she's just like there's no details. Right. When she's into it, you get a wealth of details about that's this is the way this was performed, this was what the coven did on this day, this was the date, this was the weather conditions, these were our observations at the time. And then it's, yeah, we've done that. All right, bye, love. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Last time I go on fucking Etsy. (laughs) (laughs) It never occurred to me to look for a witch on Etsy. Well, they no longer allow spells. Really? On Etsy. They've actually changed that now. Um, But look, Aziraphale gets into Madame Tracy. (laughs) Oh, yes, he does. But in a very <laughs> appropriate way for an angel, um, <laughs> I guess, as, as appropriate as it can be. And they sit down and have their discussion and then Shadwell arrives and they have to have another discussion and eventually they head off to also be there. And it's, I mean, it, again, this is where there's all these plot, it seems like there's all these plot threads coming together, but really it's just all the characters that you've met all being there at the end when most of them don't really have any real impact on it because Mm. by this stage Adam's powers have started to manifest in the fact that the things that he is talking about and imagining which are mostly things he's read about in Anathema's occult magazines are starting to really happen in the world Mm. some of which are hilarious and some of which are also things probably best left in the past and not written about anymore like the Nepalese people in the tunnels Um, but then you, you know the aliens landing all over the world and spreading a message of goodwill and the the leviathan or the kraken waking up in the deeps to eat the japanese whaling ships um and everything japanese in this book by the way is named after some sort of sushi or sushi ingredient yeah every single thing even when um the parts for where the part the Mm. location that mails the wasabi car Mm. parts is nigiri yeah yeah Yeah. you're like that's not a place (laughs) that's that's a thing what's your cat's name (laughs) my cat's name is tonkatsu that's okay that's good it's got cat in it and then and and we've got another one called kitsu unless you're my landlord in which case i'd like you to know that i have no cats (laughs) yeah i've never seen them yeah what yep Tamagotchis are, are real. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but the uh, but you, you have all this stuff happening where you know Adam's Adam's stuff is coming true. I love the aliens because it's just like weird references to particular sci-fi things. Although, uh, as I discovered um, in the old uh, annotated Pratchett file, which is um, from the days of news groups, um, when you couldn't look up 
a wiki, um, someone had to compile an actual document and post it on a news group for you to get annotations about books. Um, and the annotated Pratchett file is a venerable example of this, not least because Pratchett himself used to go on the news groups and answer questions sometimes back in the early days. But uh, there was a, a lot of discussion about whether the one that's shaped like a dustbin that falls over is meant to be a reference to a Dalek or to R2-D2. And clearly it could be either, which is why they don't get too um, specific about it. Because it was a pep pot. It was a pep pot, which, which does point to more towards Dalek. I, mm. I agree. Although I wonder if they ever changed that in an American edition of the book. Probably no, not. they kind of. I actually really appreciated this with, um, with you know whatever. You know, there, there is no American edition. The the greatest single nod you get to that is here is a note for our American readers. Yeah, which the they're footnotes. doing more for the comedic mm. opportunity yeah. of explaining things in a way that UK readers will find hilarious <laughs> as well. The currency footnote. Oh, <laughs> Milton oh Keynes. God. That was also great. Yeah, I yes, Milton Keynes. Mm. Mm. There's a quote that I really like that's just kind of how the aliens are the cops of the universe, which is CO2 level up 0.5% in Rasp, giving him a meaningful look. You do know you could find yourself charged with being a dominant species while under the influence of impulse-driven consumerism, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of the most depressingly still relevant parts of the book. Yeah. And I was actually reading the bit about the Japanese whaling ship the day after Japan announced they were exiting the International Whaling Commission and resuming commercial whaling. And I was like, oh. One can only pray for a kraken. Yes. yes. So all that's happening um, and the apocalypse is generating momentum because Adam suddenly has that. And I, I don't know about you, but I actually found one of the most genuinely disturbing parts of the book, and I love it, it's one of my favourite parts, is when the Antichrist part of Adam starts to not take over but really strongly influence him and he starts he goes from this kid that's very lovable and the kind of you know you he's the best to suddenly going yeah and the world is kind of a bit shit isn't it wouldn't it be good if we could just scrap it all and start over again and you're like that's not adam what's happened no don't no and it's like really i i really felt that part so this is what happens before anybody has any idea about how ai will interact with humans once they get on the internet because Mm -hmm. effectively that's what's happened adam's had a little bit of a moment he's gone a little ultron yeah yeah. i was just about to say a little ultron you know he's gone super thanos as well it's not like 50 percent. it's everyone except for my friends (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah so ultron yeah yeah Yeah. i'm gonna save humanity by destroying humanity so so lovely listener basically armageddon or the apocalypse will be brought about by the singularity. <laughs> Look, it's it is it's on its, its way. It's one of the things that's not in here. this book <laughs> that <laughs> that I feel like would be in a modern version of the story. You know, like there's no because it, again, like even the things that Adam is imagining that are leading us towards the apocalypse are very old fashioned, like flying saucer style aliens, and uh, which it's it's more like the you know the day the Earth stood still than anything more recent than that, and. It's a little return to the Forbidden Planet. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, it's back to that 50s-esque kind of, you know, nostalgia. Although it's interesting because the time it was written was a time of, like the the sci-fi that was on TV was not something that kids would watch. Like it was, it's it's like 80s, 90s. It's kind of like the just past the kind of Blake 7 era, um, Doctor Who's just been cancelled. Like there's just not a lot of British sci-fi around at that time, you know, and particularly in that idyllic kind of 1950s idea of, growing up 
that's the kind of sci-fi you imagine he's watching on TV is those late night black and white films that are not, you know, they're at worst PG rated. Well, there's the reference to E.T. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. So, I mean, you know, that's his version of of aliens is basically (laughs) E.T. Yeah. Nice aliens. Nice, nice aliens who help your bicycle fly. And Mm. tell you what's going wrong. I mean, they're basically the aliens from that Klaatu song. Uh, calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Mm-hmm. You know, that's 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 what's going on there. That used to be a very big topic of conversation on the Fortean Times mailing list. Oh, <laughs> and I could, quick shout out. I am so glad that Charles Fort got a reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I'm amazed that they don't because they don't actually name check. Do they name check the, the Times? They don't, do they? Because they, no. they they sort of don't really name the magazines that he's no. reading. They just talk about them in a sort of a bleak way, but it's clearly the 14 times. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, that's great. Uh, but all that's happening, and as it comes to that climax, everybody arrives, but really they don't need to be there. Like nothing that happens. The only one who really influences events, well, the only ones who really influence events are the, the horse persons, the motorcyclists, and weirdly, Newt. Like and, and the rest of it is all down to Adam and his decision, because he sort of sets these things in motion and then goes, "Oh, I don't want that to happen." Actually, so he goes to the place to do something about it. Um, but then he ultimately doesn't stop it either. Isn't the, the them's kind of fight their horsemen mm. equivalent, mm. and sort of the young win, yeah, over the old, which is kind of like the whole name thing again. The third side. Which really does bring this back into Tony Blair territory. <laughs> um, it, it's, you know, the middle way. It's not, you know, he's saying, no, I'm not on the devil's side. I'm actually not on God's side. This is my side. This is my team. These are my horse people. Mm. Yeah, that's true. But it's a, he sort of stops the the supernatural side of things, but then the practical end to the apocalypse after it's got a practical start from the um, motorcyclists messing with all the air bases, mm. radio equipment to start off a nuclear exchange is Newt touching the device and all and all messing with it and his natural ineptitude with technology <laughs> stopping it from setting anything off because it just stops working. I feel like that was like a 200-page joke. That was the punchline. Yeah. yeah. Like he's that's his whole – like. Because they they set that up with this introduction mm. right at the start when he's a kid, mm. and then that's the payoff. But in between, it's got nothing to do with his no. character, really. So yeah, it is a bit weird. I don't know about that. And again, it feels and and even Aziraphale and Crowley, like it feels right that they're there at the end because they're there at the start, but they don't really do anything. I think kind of the point that they don't play a role ties in a little bit with good and evil are irrelevant to this battle mm. in some ways. Well, actually, isn't that a, that's a really interesting point because, you know, what is then the point of this showdown? And it comes back to, you know, what you're asking about anathema. It's free will. And so that is why Adam is human incarnate. Mm. Um, because he's just saying, no, this is actually my choice. And so therefore then you've just got Aziraphale and Crowley there as witnesses. Mm. It yeah. kind of it mm. always makes me feel like it's one of those um you know the show TV show Supernatural mm. which is now in its 70th season mm-hmm. and is yep. very very formulaic but it knows what it does and it knows what it can do well and that it feels like the season finale for those it's like 
You've got all these little red herrings and, you know, dead ends and things like that, when really it's just Sam and Dean fighting a person, but there's about 20 different people yeah. surrounding mm. it, and it felt like that with this. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Crowley and Aziraphale are also kind of there because then their bosses turn up, mm. effectively, because you have Metatron and um, Beelzebub coming to Earth. They go, we're not happy about this. Uh, and then I guess Aziraphale does sort of get them to back off and not force the issue because he kind of has that. And it's his inspired moment. And I think it's after he mm. picks up the sword, like mm. you were saying, he suddenly gets his gumption back in his personality where he's like, but maybe this is part of the ineffable plan. I mean, do you know what the ineffable plan is? <laughs> and everyone's like, no. And then Crowley backs him up. And I, I quite liked that he drove that because he mm. hadn't driven much throughout the rest of the book. And then that was his moment to shine and go, no, don't you understand how this works? It's, it means that we just do not know how it's supposed to go. So we can't say that this isn't right, um, which I thought was a nice moment. Hmm. I feel like everybody was there because they'd been fated to be there. And I think mm. that was the point of it all being driven by the nice and accurate prophecies mm. of yeah. Agnes Nutter. And that really it was Agnes's book the whole way through. Yeah. Right to the end where she's the smoke above the, ho- above the house. Yeah. And they're burning her second yeah. volume. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That was nice. I thought that was a nice touch. Um, One thing we we haven't talked about I do want to mention is that there's that moment where Adam kind of imposes his will on the them and then immediately regrets it. And and it's like, oh, like, and that resonated for me with so, and I'm sure we all have things in our lives where we think I did that, you know, in a moment of anger or a Mm. moment of, of disappointment and I, and I knew at the time that it was wrong and I know at the time and I know now much more so how wrong it was. And you think back and you go, but at the moment I just, I, I didn't and I immediately knew. Ah. And you have those moments in your life and I felt for him because I'm like, mm. you did that out of reflex and you didn't know what power you had and now you regret using that power. And I was like, oh, yeah, I really identified with that moment. Mm. I felt really bad for him but also for his friends because they – would be generally frightening moment like how awful for them you know well i think that's kind of part of it isn't it like part of growing up is learning how Mm -hmm. to use your power and learning when you've overstepped those boundaries but Mm. it's also an an enormous part of just being human yes just that those those human moments that you have where you do exactly that you use your power for evil Mm. and you never intended to but you just went too far or pushed too much yeah yeah um and it's and that's the kind of thing that snaps him out of that that mode that he's in like and gives the human part of him control again um but and it's nice that it's sort of it's it's never quite expressed in that sort of you know there's a separate part of him that's the antichrist it's like no that's that's just part of his whole and he's trying to find that balance of who he is and what he wants and what he's doing. Well, it was actually really interesting because at that moment of reaction, of frustration and anger and all that sort of thing, he just yells for such a Mm. long time. Mm. And it's almost like he, you know, the book sort of said, well, no, you get the feeling like it's almost like he yelled a lot of it out of him. Mm. And then as the book said, he was more Adam than he ever was before. At that point. Yeah. So that was his moment of temptation and transformation and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
It feels like it's a moment where he makes a choice about what kind of person he wants to be mm-hmm. going into the future. Like, And so that is, again, that comes back to that age where you have that sort of summer that's the last sort of golden summer in a yeah. way that you make that decision about who you're you're going to be or which direction mm-hmm. you're going to go in. It's like when Harry has the sorting hat on his head and it tells him he'll be great in Slytherin and he's like, no, I do not want that. And so they put him in Gryffindor. Yeah, exactly. Where you Another have. 11-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that should be the other drinking game, actually. Every time, time you mention Oh, I've got a Doctor Who reference to make, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> Jumping back to the M25 where it's all gridlocked and no one can move at all. Oh, There's yeah. an episode of Doctor Who. Called where, Gridlock. Yeah, where everyone is stuck on this road forever and they think they're going to get to the exit, but all the exits are blocked. And in a day, everyone just inches forward a little bit from everyone else inching forward a little bit. So it reminded me a lot of that. I think about that episode quite a lot. I think it's because I hate driving when it's busy. Do people drink for that one or not? Because it was me. Uh, that's a good question. Double drink. I don't know. I mean, I had a couple others, but I've deliberately not mentioned them. Uh, so that's fine. Don't suppress your true nature. What have you <laughs> taken from this book? No, that's, that's fine. Uh, but, I mean, look, that, that kind of brings us to the end of the plot, really. I mean, Adam kind of undoes all the things that happened, like all of the weird supernatural stuff disappears. I do like there's a few concerning things in that. Like they talk about the fact that some people are trying to figure out where all of the ambassadors who were sent to Atlantis have gone now that Atlantis <laughs> just disappeared again. Um, which I thought was great. And the very weird idea they have about how Atlantis works because they're trying to figure it out. And they're like, is it under the sea? Can they breathe underwater? Or is it like a big dome where they all, and do they all wear diving helmets all the time? And Adam got so upset that someone actually came out with a better idea than him. Mm. Yeah. And I felt like that was a nod to the collaborative writing process. (laughs) Yes. And we have that nice little scene where, you know, at the end, Adam's, you know, he's grounded because they know that his dad's like, I don't know what you did, but you clearly did something wrong. So. Pissed off the guy who writes letters to the council all the time. So. <gasps> oh, that guy. Oh, God, that guy. <laughs> yeah. He was so real. Too real. Yeah. How, like, I mean, like, you know, when you, you, know, you felt seen with, you know, well, we both felt seen mm. with Wednesday, but when he starts mentally composing the letters <laughs> in his head, it's mm-hmm. like, Get out of my room! <laughs> and then when he goes, oh, this is too good for the Tadsfield Echo, I'm going to send it to the Times. And it's like, oh, that's in the heart. Wow. Can yeah. I also that's the say, ultimate burn, that is, isn't it? <laughs> it's like the writer sees you and yeah. is pointing through the pages. It's like Agnes Nutter looking up at the sky and calling you a daft old fool. Yeah. Stop throwing shade at me, yes. Patchett and Gaiman. Yeah. But there's that, yeah, as there's that last scene where, you know, he uses that last ounce of satanic power within him to put a hole in the hedge so that Dog can escape and he's got a plausible excuse to run off and enjoy the last day with his friends um, at the circus as they're setting up the circus, which I thought, I thought was great. They're like, we don't care about the circus. We just want to go and, like, see them setting it up and maybe end up working at the circus. <laughs> Which, again, is a very 50s, like, idea about what happens with circuses. <laughs> but it's so cute. Do you really think that's his last little scrap of demonic power? Uh, or I think it's no. I think it's he's always got it. It's just how he chooses to use it. And I don't he, think, yeah. Yeah, because he is born from hell. I don't think he has a choice in having that. But, again, that comes down to that being perfectly and, yeah. human. And he specifically tells Anathema, she's like, you can fix everything. He's like, mm, no, that kind of feels like having to clean everyone's rooms or to have to keep them 
occupied. It's too much work. He doesn't want to do it. Plus, you and can't he, fix things because humans will ruin it. Yeah, when he said mm. no one's going to learn, when he had that first flush of power mm. and he realized he could, and this is a transformation, he realized he could change things. So, yes, and there's giant trees turning up and creating a, a massive canopy in you know London. But ultimately, he realizes that, yes, it's a skill he has. Is it one that he's going to use all the time? Probably not. Hmm. And to a degree, he gets everyone to forget what had happened. Hmm. Well, they sort of do. You don't get as much of the world noticing the apocalypse as you might think in this book because there's all this stuff happening that's like very visible and the end of the world is clearly coming. And yet, um, you know, we only get little glimpses of that. You know, there's the odd news report. And that show us that this isn't just something that people who are protagonists of the book are noticing. It's like happening across the world. I mean, you get the localized stuff like the, you know, the rain of fish and other sea creatures in Tadfield um, and the radio show, the gardening radio show where the guy's like, what do I do about these Tibetan guys digging up my garden? <laughs> like stuff like that. That is exactly how people would react. They're like, how does it affect me and my very specific needs? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, there's that idea. And they talk about this with the horsemen as well. Um, that humans, and it's such a pratchety idea that comes up in so many of his, of his work. And also a gamer idea too, in a lot of his stuff that humans are very good at not seeing what they mm. know can't be real. Like they, they, they don't believe that the, the, the literal four horsemen are things, so they see them as people when they're not people. The TARDIS effect. Yeah, the, the yeah. perception filter. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, a, it's a very Doug Adams-y idea as well. They all embrace that. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah. I, I think – oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, but look, that, that pretty much brings us to the end of the book, you know, and people get their little – Happily ever after or whatever happens next kind of moments. Um, you've got Newton anathema burning the second volume of Agnes's prophecies, which gets delivered to them um, in a scene that now reminds you very much of um, the end of Back to the Future Part 2. Yes. Uh, which, of course, happened after this book. Uh, but um, did it because time is a flat circle. Stop saying <laughs> that. I think you've got to drink a whole pint every time you say that. <laughs> it just happens once every podcast now. Or has it only happened once? Because think time happened. is a flat <laughs> circle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Are you uh, guys going to do a podcast that's like the Grand Designs episode where you actually do it in order to make your listeners as drunk as humanly possible? It's going to be Doctor Who themed where we talk about time as a flat circle. Did they do that on purpose on yeah, Grand yeah, Designs? Yeah, actually, Kevin McLeod actually talked about it in a Guardian article. They'd found out about it and they had all the rules. He wrote an entire episode designed to get the people who are playing the drinking game as hammered as possible, but he won't tell anybody which one it is. That's oh my so God. good. That's so good. That's so good. And also, by the way, you should go and have a look at what the rules for that drinking game are because they are hilarious. We did skip over um, Crowley being sort of fired essentially and have demons sent after him. Oh, yeah. And mm. he escaped through the telephone lines after getting rid of Ligger um, with holy water. And I really like the whole telephone line thing and it reminded me of a scene in Danger 5, the sort of mm. crazy Adelaide show about World War II if it would happen in the 60s with a ragtag bunch of derps. And <laughs> there's just this great scene because it's quite surreal where someone, like the enemy calls up and then Ilsa just fires a gun into the phone and it shoots him through the telephone wires. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so I just loved that. I was like, yeah. Oh, man. That sequence is brilliant. Although I would feel like in another uh, sort of case of them really over-egging things, like we knew it was holy water. Like you didn't have to have that whole what could be inside the safe that he has to handle with a rubber gloves. Uh, um, and the tongs. 
and then tongs and stuff. And you're like, I get, we get it. We get it. I, I still love that sequence. Yeah. I think it's with cool. some of those ones where it is actually, oh, rhymes with ocean or estelance or whatever, mm. I feel like sometimes there's actually just a little bit of an attempt to say we know that not everyone who reads this is going to be Christian, so you're not going to be down with understanding what a lot of this stuff is. Mm. You know, we can tell you in complete detail about that flippin' um, dancing, you know, angels dancing <laughs> on the head of a pin because that was an hilarious moment, don't get me wrong, but there are some things where they do have to build the suspense and actually build in a wee bit of an investigation and a clue for people who just won't get it. Mm. Mm. Now that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe this is the point we should move on to what our favourite parts of the book were. What what do do we have any favourite sections like or quotes or footnotes, things that you want to read out? Um I've got one ready. Go um, for it. And it's a silly one that doesn't really further the plot, but it's when fish have spilled everywhere and the lorries shed everything and it just goes on the top of the pile, a rather large octopus waved a languid tentacle at them. The sergeant resisted the temptation to wave back. I don't know why I love that so much. It's just like the imagery is so good and it's also just taps into that thing. Like if something's waving at you, you it's hard not to wave back. <laughs> it's true. And is this the same octopus that's later driving a police car or something? I, I like to think that it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would just like to share with you a little, a couple of little Crowley moments. And the first is Crowley's description uh, mm. in Dramatis Personae for the book, and it's Crowley, an angel who did not so much fall as saunter vaguely downwards. <laughs> I think that is just such the perfect explanation for Crowley's character, whereas everyone is, is sort of got these very matter-of-fact descriptions of who they are. One of my favourite sections in the book is actually where he's talking about um, the M25, which is, for those of you who don't know, the London Ring Road. Many phenomena, wars, plagues, sudden audits, have been advanced as evidence for the hidden hand of Satan in the affairs of man. But whenever students of demonology get together, the M25 London Orbital Motorway is generally agreed to be among the top contenders for Exhibit A. Where they go wrong, of course, is assuming that the Wretched Road is evil simply because of the incredible carnage and frustration it engenders every day. In fact, very few people on the face of the planet know that the shape of the M25 forms the sigil Odegra in the language of the Black Priesthood of Ancient Mu and means Hail the Great Beast, Devourer of Worlds. The thousands of motorists who daily fume their way around its serpentine lengths have the same effect as water on a prayer wheel, grinding out an endless fog of low-grade evil to pollute the metaphysical atmosphere for scores of miles around. It was one of Crowley's better achievements. It had taken years to achieve and had involved three computer hacks, two break-ins, one minor bribery, and one wet night when all else had failed, two hours in a squelchy field shifting the marker pegs a few but occultly incredibly significant metres. When Crowley had watched the first 30-mile-long tailback, he'd experienced the lovely, warm feeling of a bad job well done. It had earned him a commendation. Because it's a ring road, is it... Make it a new ring of hell? Like, is it another circle of hell? Just- <laughs> I was actually thinking about that when I was walking up. In which case, hell's got a lot of new mm. rings. It's either that or it's that particularly, I can't remember which one it is, the second, the second ring of hell it is where all of the traitors are. 
all of the false prophets mm. and oh, that's, traitors that's get like to live right in the middle. It's right like, in yeah, the middle, second circle or something. I feel like anybody who constructs ring roads, <laughs> that's where they go <laughs> when they're not actual demons. Yeah. Um, yeah. My favorite is when Dog appears, the hellhound appears. Oh, yeah. And he changes himself. Now, it's a whole kind of like, you know, um, process where Adam is kind of, you know, explaining to the gang um, how, you know, he's going to get a dog and it's going to be the perfect dog. And his idea of the perfect dog is very different from hell. It is very different from the hellhounds, but it's very Adam. But so he's, you know, the dog's kind of changed his shape and just by watching him through this little uh, hedge at the quarry. And then Pepper asks him what you're going to, what he's going to call it. The hound waited. This was the moment. The naming. This would give its purpose, its function, its identity. The eyes glowed a dull red, even though they were a lot closer to the ground, and it dribbled into the nettles. I'll call him Dog, said his master positively. Saves a lot of trouble, a name like that. The hellhound paused. Deep in its diabolical canine brain, it knew that something was wrong, but it was nothing if not obedient, and its great sudden love of its master overcame all misgivings. Who was it to say what size it should be anyway? It trotted down the slope to meet its destiny. Strange, though. It had always wanted to jump at people, but now it realised that against all expectation... It wanted to wag its tail at the same time. <laughs> so oh good. And I, I love the bit just before that too where it talks about there was this weird noise as if yeah. caused by the inrush of air suddenly occupying the space where as if a large dog, for example, had just turned into a small dog. <laughs> I know. And then another small pop as an e- as if an ear turned inside out. <laughs> so, oh, so cute. Also, dog is God backwards and he's inverting both sides. Yeah. Oh. Death is not in this book an awful lot, um, but he's a very different death to the death of the Discworld. He's much more shaped by the biblical idea of what death should be. But I love the scene where he gets his parcel from the much suffering delivery man who's been all over the world giving the artifacts to the various motorcycle riders of the apocalypse. And at this point, you know, he's read the instructions and he realizes what he's got to do. And he just steps out into the traffic and gets killed by a lorry. And then he realizes he's dead. And uh, death has like one joke. Um, so he gets the message, which is come and see. And death says, finally, there was a grin on its face. But then given the face, there couldn't have been anything else. Thank you. It continued. I must commend your devotion to duty. <laughs> Sir, the late delivery man was falling through a gray mist. And all he could see were two spots of blue that might have been eyes and might have been distant stars. Don't think of it as dying, said Death. Just think of it as leaving early to avoid the rush. <laughs> like, that's so good. And he's clearly making a joke. He's much better at jokes than, than the Discworld Death, who mm-hmm. always tries it and they always fall really flat. Also, just quickly, speaking of inverting our repetitions, etc., when Adam turns the them into his horsemen or you know, biker pro- uh, proxies, he says to them, come and see. Huh. I loved it. Mm. Um, I also am a huge fan of how death only talks in all caps. Mm. Yeah, and that's consistent amongst all of the Discworld books too, that death mm. always talks in all caps. But also anytime the forces of hell take over something to talk to Crowley, they also talk in all caps, at least in my edition. I don't know if that's oh, different in, in mine yours. mine too. In mine as well. Um, which I thought was a bit weird. I'm like, 
because normally no one else has got the same voice mm. as death. So I thought that was kind of like your elderly relatives who don't understand technology being like, hello, hello, can you hear me through oh, yeah. this thing? Oh, totally. It's like talking yeah. to your grandmother on Skype. you know, yeah. Or anyone talking on a mobile phone on public transport. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, you'll have to sp- – I'm on a train. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we should get on to some listener questions because we do have a handful and we should try and answer them before we uh, wrap things up. This one's from Steve Lay. What do you think pestilence did in retirement? Would they try to make a comeback at the, at the antibiotics crisis take hold? Would pollution refuse to hand back the horse? Well, that, yeah, well, I think we kind of, we touched on this earlier, didn't we? Like we think that he might have tried to make a comeback. But what is he doing? Like what happens to pestilence? Well, um, Steve pictures pestilence in a recliner on a tropical beach somewhere, allowing the mosquitoes to feed, oh. which I think famine would have something to say about. But <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, what do, you, what do you do if you're a retired motorcyclist of the apocalypse schmooze celebrities yeah oh. jenny mccarthy's best yeah. mate mm-hmm. so you don't so much retire as just sort of plan your comeback yeah yeah okay. release a few christmas albums <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep okay I know, maybe he's just joined a death metal band you know well, like even like horrible flashbacks to his former job though if it's like death metal no, metal. I, just I feel like he's in a Norwegian death metal band because he gets to wear a costume. I feel he's possibly a wellness guru. Oh, isn't that what famine is though in the book? No, he well he's diet. He's guru. a diet guru. He's a diet guru. Similar but not the same. I, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of feel like he he's you know, hey, I've set up a Facebook uh, group for everyone so we can talk about you know. He, he's, you know, he's, what's that chef's name? Pete the Idiot? What's his name? Oh, my God. Oh. He's oh, Evans. Yeah. Evans. Paleo yeah. Pete. Yeah, there, there is a touch of pestilence would actually be a really great friend of his. And it's like, no, sure, no, use that sunscreen. That sunscreen is great, um, the one that you're really concerned about and actually does nothing. No, you're right. Um, there is, you know. Blah, 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 blah. He would go and take fluoride out of water streams and things like oh, that. Oh, and he'd be the one whispering yeah. to missionaries, no, you, you should definitely go to that untouched island and give disease to all the people. Yeah, no, go go visit the North Centralese people. So effectively mm. what you're saying is that he's an editor for Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop site? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And he's has he got a jade egg for you? <laughs> or he is Gwyneth Paltrow. What? what? <laughs> He's all about steaming your vagina. Oh, uh, just that's the worst uh, sentence I've ever heard. In yeah, my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think we've covered that. Yeah, I've got this one here from mm. Brian Holding on Twitter, um, whose Twitter handle is Buggy Swires. So clearly a deep, deep Discworld fan. Um, there are quite a few references that are very culturally specific to the UK. Does that ever get in the way of your enjoyment of the book, or are the quirks of the world universal enough that the jokes work anyway? I think. This we, we kind of touched on this already, didn't we? This book kind of explains them to you where they need to be explained. I and mean, I, they have a punchline for them. Yeah, mm. I mean, I'm a massive Anglophile anyway, so it's never been much of a problem for uh, me. As someone with a British dad who read a lot of Enid Blyton, I, I mean, there's not enough British references <laughs> in this. It's yeah. just like very scarce. We're the wrong crowd for this question, really, <laughs> yeah. aren't we? Uh, I, no, I I do think that the references though are quite universal. I mean, anyone who's been in any way, shape, or form you know, growing up with any kind of British television, which in Australia is basically the ABC. Uh, so of that age, I think, I think you'll, you'll get it. Um, yeah. I mean, Manchester explains itself quite honestly, yes. um, which of course is one of Crowley's greatest achievements. But I think everyone's had um, occasions where they've been massively frustrated by bureaucracy 
Mm. And I think people have had moments where they've had fear of the future and a nostalgia for childhood that they wished would never end, etc. Mm. I think these are kind of things that actually are the bedrock of the book mm. that they enjoy. And also I think because of the generation that created it, um, even if you haven't read the Just William books, you're familiar with the kind of childhood that it's about. Yeah. And you don't have to read this book and understand that it's largely a parody of that. Because mm. um, it's bookended by it. apple stealing. Yeah. yeah. Like you get it. Like, yeah. For us, it's like in Blighton, but for other people, it'll be something similar. Mm. All right. I've got another question from Hopscotch Friday. What is the perfect music track to accompany the paintball scene? Oh, good question. Oh, excellent question. Well, so when they've all suddenly got real guns and they're like, it's real, guys. We've got it. Yeah. So I've got one that I think would work really well. It is Fascinating New Things, um, which is the same song they play in the 10 Things I Hate About You paintball scene. And I feel like that would be a very nice parallel. And it would be a fascinating new thing to discover that you were firing a real gun during paintball. (laughs) I kind of wanted to be Blur's Park Life. (laughs) There's actually, there's something very, you know, yeah, quite good about that. For me, I'm thinking kind of cheesy masculinity. So... I would feel like they would want Eye of the Tiger, but they wouldn't be able to afford it and somehow got a B-side version of Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf or something like that. <laughs> I uh, I kind of want it to be handbags and glad rags because then it's the cast of the UK office <laughs> shooting each other with real guns. Got some more mad dogs and Englishmen yeah. go out in the midday sun. Oh, that could be also quite good. Yeah, uh, those are all good choices. Amazing. Uh, we've got a couple more. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl R. Jennings asked, do you believe that collaborative literary efforts benefit more from authors with complementary or contrasting writing styles? Which is quite a deep literary question for this podcast. And there is no correct answer, I think. And it's a good thing we have an author here. Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe we need to first by asking the question, do we think that Gaiman and Pratchett have contrasting or similar literary styles? I think they have complementary references. I think they have complementary interests. Um, they both have a you know, mischievous sense of humour. However, one has a, you know, I think Gaiman has his humour at maybe seven and, you know, Pratchett's is at, you know, 11. Um, you can tell, you, or you often feel like you can tell when it's a Pratchett bit. Um but I think, you know, can they cover each other's weaknesses, though? Can they, you know, trim things back and help each other with that? So from that perspective, I think it actually, you know, they are very complementary. I don't think they're actually all that contrasting. Would you be able to do one a collaboration with a writer with contrasting styles? Yes, but it would have to be maybe then more character-based and taking it in turns with the character. Or owning a character, yeah. reading a character maybe yeah. and writing it along that way. But I, I agree. I think they're quite complementary. I feel like Terry Pratchett's got a much lighter sense of humour and Neil Gaiman is, is a bit more cynical and he'll probably hate that if he hears that. Cynical, no. As a much darker and he draws on much darker mythologies, I feel, mm. because I feel he's very much responsible for the four bikers of the apocalypse and that switch to pollution, which you see coming out again in American Gods. Yeah. Although there is that moment where the aliens and the is it the dinosaur jumps out of an alien ship or something and has a fight, which when I read I was like, oh, that reads very much like one of the scenes in Fortunately the Milk, which is a Neil Gaiman hmm. uh, children's book. So I guess he has that sort of bit of lightness in there as well, which probably is why they 
they work together. He has the lightness, but does he have the utter surrealism and ridiculousness of Pratchett? And I think that that was... Hmm. His fantasy is, off, is much more grounded in reality. Yeah, yeah they are. In a yeah. way. But then Pratchett's is, t- is grounded in reality, but in a different way. Like uh, Neil Gaiman's fantasy is like a, a departure from the real world in terms of where it's set and what happens, whereas Pratchett's is, starts off in a fantasy realm but then has stuff that is so analogous to the real world. That is, so they're kind of two different approaches to blending mm. fantasy and reality. And I think they are complementary and it's no coincidence that the book that they wrote together is one of the few that Pratchett has written that is set in, you know, on the contemporary earth, you know, for want of a better term. Um, yeah. But that, I mean, the other question we got that kind of follows on from that is, uh, did you want to read that I don't one have that one. Oh, actually. well, the other one was, can you, this is from Quickseed on Twitter. Uh, can you tell which author wrote a given bit? And they thought that the funny footnotes have Terry written all over them, but it's not like Neil isn't funny. So is he written, writing in, in Terry's style? And someone else did send us a video, um, which is one of the many places where one or the other of them have talked about how that worked. And uh, if you, it's look, definitely read about the collaborative process because this was being done in the late 80s. So they, there was no internet to speak of. They were mailing each other floppy disks. Mm. Um, Except for that one brief moment where they attempted to do a computer to computer and it took longer than the floppy disk for the files to arrive. Yeah. Um, because you know, Neil was in the middle of writing the Sandman at the time. And, and also they very much both acknowledged that Pratchett was a novelist and Gaiman had yet to write any novels Mm. at this stage of his career. And so they felt that, you know, Pratchett very much took the lead because this was his medium. And, and they both say that if we were writing a comic book together, it would have been the other way around. But also, you know, Pratchett was writing books, which meant he was kind of on his own timeline or with very long deadlines, whereas writing a monthly comic, Gaiman had deadlines like constantly. So it was more sort of Pratchett's driving force, I think, is how they describe it. And I think the number that gets bandied around is that Pratchett probably wrote 70 to 75% of the actual prose, but a lot of the ideas were still Gaiman's. And they discussed that, but they're not really interested in portioning it out and saying which bit was which. I have to say I don't... I, it, it doesn't leap out at me which ones are which mm. in the, when I read it. It feels like a blending. And a lot of the prose feels to me very Pratchett-y. There's no bits where I'm like, oh, Pratchett couldn't have written this bit mm. or, or necessarily vice versa. But it feels overall to me much more like a Pratchett book than a Gaiman book. Mm. I, you know, I'm a huge Gaiman fan, so I really only came across this book because of Neil Gaiman. But it's been a lovely introduction to Terry Pratchett, who has such a light, mischievous touch. It's like the opposite for me. I don't know Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Can't do it through Terry Pratchett. Um, I went, yeah, Neil Gaiman through to Terry Pratchett as yeah. well. So. This was my first Neil Gaiman, and I read this well before I read any of his comics, but I was interested in him because of this book. So that's that's nice. We've got a 50-50 split of which Yay! way we found the book. I feel like there are sections with the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which seems quite redolent of Sandman. Yeah. In a way, there there are those moments. But I do think I've got one footnote, and I, I hope that I'm correct, but I really feel that Neil Gaiman was responsible for the explanation of British currency. Yes. <laughs> a footnote. I feel like that's definitely a Neil Gaiman footnote. And I also feel like the computer warranty thing is definitely Neil. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the computer warranty footnote too that's is definitely great. Neil. Yeah. Um, Note for young people and Americans. So I think this is one of those ones where they're definitely helping helping people out. One shilling equals five p. 
It helps to understand the antique finances of the Witchfinder army if you know the original British monetary system. Two farthings equals one halfpenny, two halfpennies equals one penny, three pennies a threepenny bit, two threepences a sixpence, two sixpences one shilling or bob, two bob a florin, one florin and one sixpence half a crown, four half crowns equals a ten bob note, two ten bob notes equals one pound or 240 pennies, one pound and one shilling equals one guinea. The British resisted decimalized currency for a long time because they thought it was too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a great sequence in a Doctor Who episode uh, that's very similar to that where they go back to 1963 and there's this uh, military guy explaining to Ace, who's from 1980s Perryvale, um, how non-decimal currency works. That, that brings us to the end of another episode of Pratchett, our 15th episode, our first for the year of the incontrovertible skunk Amy, Jen, thank you so much for being guests on our podcast. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thanks for having me. It was great crack. Uh, now, we, we've got a few things we need to spruik before next time. If you enjoy the work of Splendid Chaps Productions, who bring you this podcast uh, every month, uh, we are launching a new weekly podcast that will run for a short time in which myself and uh, my friend Carla will be discussing each episode of the new season of Star Trek Discovery as it comes out. The podcast is called Rediscovery, and you'll probably find our first episode coming out around the same time as this episode of Pratchett launches. So you can check that out at rediscoverypodcast.com. Uh, you can find out more about the other Splendid Chaps productions if you go to splendidchaps.com, including a new miniseries of our time travel comedy, Night Terrace, uh, which you can find at nightterrace.com. There's so many websites to mention. <laughs> but that's not all we have to announce because... Uh, Liz, we've committed to doing this crazy project. We're going to do all 70 whatever novels, mm. aren't we? It's a long, It's it, that's like more than six years. Like it's going to take us a long time. Mm. Uh, so we really need this project to be sustainable so that we can make sure we get all the way to the end. And, and to that end, uh, we are launching a subscription crowdfunding program. So if you go to our website, pratchatpodcast.com, you can find all the details. And if you would like to, it is entirely optional. These episodes will still be coming out for free. You can sign up to support the podcast by giving as as little as a couple of bucks a month to help us uh, cover the costs of making it and hosting it and bringing it to you. You can subscribe for more money if you want. And however much you give us, you will get certain benefits. We'll release some extra uh, material, some extra bonus episodes. And secrets. Secret stuff uh, that only you will get. And if you want to, you can give us a bit more money and there's some extra stuff that you can give us. We won't go on about it too much, but if, if you would like to do that and help us make sure that we can keep bringing you the podcast until we have read and discussed every single book by <laughs> the great late man, uh, we will do it. Um, and we'd, we'd appreciate that so much. We also very much appreciate that, of course, not everyone can do that. And if you do spread the word of the podcast and let other people know about it, help us find an audience, that is also a great way to support the podcast. But whether you do that or not, uh, we really appreciate that you listen in the first place. Uh, we don't do this for ourselves. We do it hopefully so that people will listen to it and enjoy it uh, and read along and ask us great questions. So thank you all mm. for doing that. Um, but of course, we also need to tell you what book we're reading next time so that you can get in on the action there. What are we reading next time, Liz? The Tiniest Deities. Yes. We're Small gonna, gods. It's true. They are so <laughs> tiny. And I'm very excited that we're going to be joined by uh, my good friend, the Reverend Dr. Avril Hannah-Jones, um, who volunteered to talk about this book. I did say to her, Avril, you don't have to talk about the one that's about religion. And she said, no, I want to. So uh, we're going to get some great insight from her, I'm sure. Uh, that'll be coming out next month. Um, but until we see you again, may all your omens be good. Unless, you know, you're feeling like you don't want to be good today. Hmm? And that's all right, too. 
It's all part of the ineffable plan, isn't it? You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guests Jen Beckett and Amy Gray. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast or on the web at pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchett15. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Star Trek podcast Rediscovery and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.